Welcome back. It's episode 16 of The New Normal. We had an amazing guest, Mr. Don Kerstetter. He is an entrepreneur, former owner of a few car dealerships in the Houston area. He talks to us about the effects of COVID-19 and the global shutdown on the auto industry and some surprising statistics uh, about the sales and the new normal for the auto industry. We go into some deep conversations about the current events in our world. Enjoy the show. We are supported by Mammoth Fuel. Mammoth Fuel Bars were created with people like you in mind using only natural ingredients and zero artificial junk. We took no shortcuts in developing this highly functional and portable fuel bar. What are the benefits you may ask? Portable on-the-go fuel, post-workout recovery, boost cognitive function, aids in weight loss, anti-inflammatory, and low sugar. With 13 grams of protein and only 4 net carbs, Mammoth Fuel is the perfect meal, snack, and energy bar where you'd like to go. Try Mammoth Fuel at mammothfuel.com. Welcome to the new normal, where we're talking current events, finances, philosophy, preparedness, and more. My name is Sal, and with me as always is my good friend, Quentin. Each week, we dive into those various topics and bring you an inspiring person or message to navigate the world with a positive mindset in this new normal. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Now, here we go. Back to the show. My name is Sal. This is the new normal. With me, as always, my good friend, Quentin. Say hi to everybody, Quentin. What's up? We have an amazing guest with us today, Mr. Don Kerstetter, who you might remember the name if you're from the Houston area, the classic jingle that has stuck with me since probably mid-high school, that classic Chevrolet. So we're, we're really happy to have Mr. Don Kerstetter on the show today. Uh, Quentin, thank you so much for, for getting him on the show. We've got a lot to talk about. There's a lot happening in the news. I don't know if you count last week's episode, but it was just a really slow news cycle and we just had nothing, nothing, nothing. at all to talk about. Very it, it's just been a very boring week. Um, and it's, and we, be, it's just become more boring. And, and I think we, we should, each and every episode moving forward is at least have a Tiger King update. That is by far... It's the only way to stay relevant. It's the only way to stay relevant at this point. So on this episode of Tiger King. That's an absolute joke. We don't watch that show. We don't know anything about that show. If you saw, <laughs> if you heard the last episode, you know exactly how much I know about, I forgot his name already, Joe Exotic. <laughs> Joe somebody. Right? Joe somebody. Anyways, Don, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'd love to get a little bit of background on who you are, where you came from, and where you stand on everything that we're going to talk about today. So give a little introduction uh, of yourself and, and how the audience may know you and how they can get to know you. Okay, cool. Uh, I'm originally from Columbus, Mississippi. My dad was a career serviceman in the Air Force, and uh, they're originally from Pennsylvania, and we wound up in Mississippi just by a stroke of luck, I guess, and uh, grew up uh, normal normal upbringing. Uh, started doing martial arts when I was about 16 years old, and that's been been one of the uh, defining uh, pursuits of my life. Uh, went to Old Miss, graduated from Old Miss in 87 with a degree in English Lit and a minor in business and a degree in English Lit from Old Miss is, qualifies you to sell cars and very little else. Uh, 
started uh, after I got that degree. I mean, really seriously, I ran my own private school from the time I was 19 until I was 25. Uh, one of the reasons why it took so long to finish school. It took me six years to get that degree in English Lit because I did not have a clue what I wanted to do. And then wound up in Dallas in 1988, worked in one job for about a year, got in the car business in 89. And, uh, you know, I'm just now starting my uh, fourth decade uh, in or associated with the car business. That's amazing. And, and I can imagine that over the last few months with the COVID-19 shutdowns, the lockdowns, if you will, um, the stay-at-home orders, I think Houston just extended their stay-at-home order. So their, their judge in Houston, uh, affectionately called Dora the Explorer, has extended <laughs> the, the shutdown for, for Houston. So talk to me a little about the, the auto industry. I did see on Twitter, this was probably a few weeks back now, there was um, a graph that showed, and, and I wish I had it in front of me, but there was a graph that showed auto industry sales and, and how just absolutely catastrophic the shutdowns were. You know, when we think of charts and graphs, we think about the stock market kind of volatility going up and down, up and down, kind of the EKG looking uh, graph. This graph showed that. And then March, it just went, pew, like the bottom just fell out. Can you talk to me a little bit about the effects of COVID-19 and, and maybe even the civil unrest that has been happening even more recently and how that's affected auto industry sales and, and morale within the salesmanship of, of selling cars? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a little background, I've owned four different dealerships and uh, the dealership that I bought when I moved down here, I was a minority partner of that. We were a dealer of the year with General Motors for six years in a row, every complete year that I was there. Uh, so we've got a lot of experience. I've, I've been in the car business since 89. So uh, I've been I've been down that road for a long time. We've seen a lot come and go, including two Gulf Wars, uh, one of the massive, most massive uh, depression slash recessions over the last 40 years, uh, GM bankruptcy. I mean, we've seen it all. The COVID-19, it was funny because I was in negotiations uh, to possibly buy a small Chevy dealership uh, in March. And, uh, and then also I want to open up my own, uh, pre-owned lot. And it was funny because when this thing hit, I immediately knew that I didn't want to do anything at that point because bank financing was going to be hard. Uh, I, I just assumed that the factories were going to shut down and that the supply of cars would dry up, which mean the used car market would dry up because people aren't trading in cars anymore. Uh, and the funny thing is, is all that was true for them month of March. I mean, there were dealerships all around the United States that shut down. People had no idea what they were going to do, you know, from the auto industry perspective, what they were going to do next. But Texas and many other states voted it as an essential business. So the dealership stayed open. And at first, my impression now, hey, I'm outside the car business a little bit right now, but my impression was, is, hey, this thing is going to be a disaster. You know, people are going to be wearing masks. Nobody's going to want to visit the dealerships. But the funny thing is, is like they normally do, the manufacturers uh, saw an opportunity. Uh, they pushed incentives very hard. And right now, uh, the thinking that was true in March has completely flipped. Dealerships are out of inventory right now. All right, There are many dealerships all across the state of Texas that have no inventory. Some dealerships are down to 15 or 20 dealers. 15 or 20 cars, some of the smaller dealerships. There's major dealerships in town here that are down below 30, 40 uh, Silverado pickup trucks, for instance. They have very, very, very little inventory. We thought used car values, well, used car values did immediately drop. And the banks pulled financing from 
uh, some of the different dealerships and, and uh, they thought, well, we don't know what these cars are going to be worth. Well, what wound up happening is, is there was lots of trade-ins. There were a lot of used cars sold. Now used car inventory has taken off. Oh, well, used car inventory has dropped. The prices and the value of used cars have, dropped, have, have gone through the roof. And then so now what you have is a seller's market when it comes to pre-owned cars. So it's crazy. It has really literally flipped on its head. Um, one of the largest retailers of pre-owned cars in the United States misjudged the market. They're located here in Houston. I think everybody knows who they are. They took a humongous hit on inventory because they took it all to the auction and dumped it prior to uh, the, the market uh, flipping and the used cars rising in value. They took a massive hit. And this is just a, you know, it's, it's inside knowledge in the industry. But it's been an unusual time. I mean, you know, one of the things that we're seeing is, is, is customers are, although it's a seller's market for pre-owned right now, um, sellers are definitely catering to the customer. They're taking cars to customers' work. Uh, they're, they're doing deals over the Internet and uh, uh, by phone, which they never want to do you know dealerships don't want to do that they want you to go to the dealership they want you to sit down they want you to get in that new car and feel you know feel the leather and smell it and and, and be able to drive it that customer experience is very important to build enthusiasm for a sale now the enthusiasm is hey we're going to bring it and we're going to park it in your driveway we're going to sign the contracts you know in your home office uh, you're going to have three days to think about it, and hopefully, you know, you're going to love everything that we've done for you. So now they're catering for the customer. And, you know, we talked about the new normal. That may be a new normal uh, for at least some dealerships when it comes to uh, uh, purchasing an automobile or purchasing and selling an automobile. What do you, how what have you, you seen? Go ahead. No, how have you seen this affect the, uh, the service side of the business? Because that's a huge uh, source of revenue for all dealerships that have uh, an established service department. And for a while, we were seeing part shortages from Asia. Um, we were seeing uh, even part shortages here in the United States. So has that picked back up? Are we seeing a return in supply? Or is this still uh, kind of, a, 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 is there like a lagging effect with that in the service down because there's not an availability of parts? Well, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, um, it depends on how you look at it. Most major dealerships are going to buy parts from uh, distributors based in town. And my old dealership was a huge parts distributor. We had a tremendous supply of parts. There's three or four different dealerships in Houston, several in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, and they all keep a great inventory of parts and millions of dollars of parts per dealership. Um, so it takes a little while for that parts inventory to sell down. That's actually a benefit for the dealership because when they have an excess amount of parts, selling out of the parts that you have is a, is a great thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it makes complete sense. Now, as far as service is concerned, you're absolutely right. It's a great point. Uh, the primary source of revenue for most dealerships is in the service department. They want to try to get 75 to 80% of their bills paid, uh, based on their service sales. So same thing applies, uh, bring it, picking up cars, bringing them back to the dealership, doing the work, having somewhat of a concierge service. That's important. Um, you know, Texas is a pretty strong state. Most people in, in, in the state of Texas are pretty strong when it comes to certain things. I don't think a lot of people were scared about coming into car dealerships. They were a little reticent to leave the house, but when, when business has to be done, they're willing to do it. Um, so you're not going to have as much pickup and delivery in the service department, although I would definitely say that at the higher end, the Mercedes, the Lexus, the BMW, uh, you're certainly going to see that happen. Uh, probably a little bit more because people are used to being catered to. 
Um, uh, you know, the thing about it is manufacturers are, are going to be off a little bit this summer. They're going to still have the normal summer shutdown they have. But let me tell you, there'll be some pent-up demand for service and for sales and everything else as soon as the new year begins, assuming that we have good news in the country, and which we have not had for the last three months. So it depends so, on what happens with the next shutdown. So let me ask you this. Um, you know, the auto industry, a lot of people don't realize it, but you, you definitely do being in the industry. The auto industry is probably just as critical to the backbone of the nation as the energy industry. And yeah. the two have a symbiotic relationship. I mean, um, you can't have one without the other, really. And so my concern is, you know, we've got we've got the major manufacturers. They had problems in the past. You know, we saw what happened in 08. Um, we did have a short downturn in sales and they are you know, they're, they're, those are very leveraged industries. Um, is there a concern in the future of having a repeat of 08 if, if this continues to go on? Or do you think that the sales revenue that we're, we're seeing right now generated in the industry is enough to keep them propped up, you know, without having something like that occur? Well, uh, that's, a, that's a great point. Uh, there are certain manufacturers that are having more problems than others. Um, sure. You know, Ford, for instance, is is uh, not particularly doing well, though they have and my Ford shares have tanked. <laughs> yeah, Ford, Ford's not doing great. Uh, they've uh, managed to have a sea change in their inventory. They've gone from you know a, a, a car based manufacturer to one that doesn't want to sell cars. GM has followed suit. Um, that's going to leave that um, uh, uh, domestic uh, uh, sedan market or car market, automobile market to. Uh, the foreign uh, companies, the foreign companies aren't having any problems. The ironic thing is, is, you know, I just sold my Nissan dealership back in December. Nissan is really, really having trouble. Uh, they're having trouble from the very top down. That's a, you can have a whole show based on what's happened. They to are. Nissan. Yeah. Over the last, since, uh, since November 18, Nissan is, uh, you know, they could have their it's own. It's cold drive. as ice. Yeah. Yeah, they, they are. And they've got one bestseller and the rest of them are, are debtor and Elvis. Uh, and so it's unfortunate, but that's just one of those things. Um, uh, GM is doing, uh, I think, particularly well, General Motors has, after they reorganized and they got through their bankruptcy years ago. They've seemed to, although they're a big ship and they turn pretty slow, they seem to have done a very good job with a lot of the, the facets of the car business. Um, you know, it's funny because I, whenever I hired salespeople and they, you know, they interview and they say, okay, well, you know, why would I want to get in the car business? And I tell them one out of every five retail dollars spent in the United States is spent on a car. It's either on or for a car, gasoline, insurance, tires, brakes, the car itself. You know, it's a numeral number of things that go into the production of an automobile. So it really is a critical industry. There's no question about it. So one of the things that I was concerned about, I'm sorry, I keep talking about concerns that I have in the auto industry because no. I, I, I want, there's, there's plenty of people that have these same concerns and I, you're an expert. I would, you know, I want to hear your opinion. I want you to address them. So, you know, we've, we've had an issue um, in the, in the past few years in the industry where we've seen a lot of subprime, right? We, we've got a lot of subprime credit. Um, a lot of these people are in the service industry. Um, a lot of them are getting, you know, help paying their bills. You know, a lot of them are getting help paying their mortgage or their rent or whatever. Um, but a lot of times, individuals from this category, especially when they when they hit hardship, we see them default. Right? We saw a lot of defaults back in '08. Is that something yeah. you're concerned about? And I mean, I, I'm concerned that because of the way the lending works with the manufacturers, that if we do see some sort of cascading trend where we just have these, you know, uh, 
kind of uh, a, a lending collapse, you know, where, where the manufacturers are no longer getting paid for, for the money they've lent out, that you're going to see that actually hit um, the lenders more significantly than the current manufacturing downturn, whatever it was for the short period of time. Uh, because this is basically money they've already spent and they've already lent this money in order to get a return for their pro- productivity in the past. So how do you see that affecting the market going forward? And do you think that that could end up triggering some sort of issue, uh, another too big to fail episode with the manufacturers? Well, I, I'll tell you, um, I made my bones in the car business in, in the finance side of the store. Uh, I was a finance director for the largest store in the United States. And I went straight from there to being a partner in a dealership in one of the largest dealerships in the U.S. And one of the things that I pride myself on is that I did not have to do subprime. Um, I, I, I don't like subprime. I actually, one of my first finance jobs in the business was, was as a, uh, what we call a special finance manager. And that means that I dealt with people with sub, subprime credit. And subprime means just on the low end of the scale, the simple, uh, right. next, below a 620 beacon. Um, subprime is what got the mortgage industry in trouble. Absolutely. We, we loaned a lot of money to a lot of people that couldn't afford their houses. And then when, when the, 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 the economy takes a slight dive, those people are the first to go. It's the same way with subprime lending. Subprime lending, unfortunately, is, is more predatory than helpful. Um, you're going to have, um, it's just part of the industry. It's really bad. I'm sorry. It's really bad here in Houston. We have a big identity theft problem here in Houston. There is, uh, I took over one of the worst dealerships in the United States. Uh, I'm not supposed to say the name even here 10 or 11 years later, but I took over one of the worst dealerships in the United States. And when I took over that store, there was a stack of blank social security cards and blank 1099s and W-2 forms to be filled out upon customer arrival, depending on what they needed to do to get the deal done, which means that's fraud. All right. Absolutely. And that happens. Unfortunately, that still happens today. Uh, Subprime deals take about 12 to 15 days done properly. They take about 12 to 15 days to fund. A regular deal takes a day. Now, the manufacturers want a middle of the road customer because that customer, they can make money on that on that finance customer. They can't really make a whole lot of money on the on the top end customer. But that part of the portfolio will support the middle and the low end of it. Most manufacturers don't want to look at a 620 beacon unless you happen to have 40, 50, 60 million dollars worth of inventory. Then they're going to do a lot what you want them to do. They'll go on to all the way down to 500. Um, but it's weird because there is just this tremendous explosion of special finance lenders out there. And it has been over the years, especially the last you know, 10 years. It's crazy. It's crazy. And, and I think those lenders are really going to take it on the chin more than others. Now, one of the things that I'm hearing about that, you know, for instance, the 0% 84-month financing with GM Financial, uh, which was really a main driver of General Motors sales this past spring, uh, that was, uh, from what I understand, you have to be, I think they told me a 730 beacon or above, or you're not going to get it. Well, there's a lot of people that are great people and have great credit, but they're not a 730 beacon. They're, you know, you know, credit card balances are a little high. <clears throat> they, uh, you know, they carry a little bit too much debt. Uh, they've got too many open autos, maybe a, a couple of different houses, one for them, one for the kid. I actually think that the, the manufacturers, the captive finance arms, learned a lot from the crash in 07 and 08. 
uh, man, I was a finance manager in, in the Western division of GMAC in December of 2008, did 12 contracts for one fourth of the United States, 12 retail contracts. That means they financed cars for 12 different people in the entire Western division of the United States. And that stretched from Dallas all the way to Houston, all the way up to uh, Portland and Seattle. As a matter of fact, into Alaska. And uh, that's a big section of the country that for them to only finance 12 cars. That's how close they were going under in OA. They were extremely close to going under. They restricted 99.9% .9 of their financing to, uh, to wholesale financing for the automotive uh, or for the dealer's inventory. And, uh, and that's, that's how they protected themselves. They got past it. My gut instinct is most of them learned their lesson and they're not going to get into that trouble again. Uh, GMAC uh, was actually making money, but they had delved over into the board side of the business and they, they lost their butt on the mortgage side of the business. And uh, that didn't help them when it came time for it. Um, I really believe that the industry itself, automotive side, not just the manufacturers, but dealers, customers, uh, uh, the special finance companies, all of them, uh, when they enter into the, the unholy alliance that is special finance, they're all risking. Customers are getting signed up for, you know, it's not usury rates because it's all mandated by state law, but you have a customer signing up for 84 months at 18% at, uh, uh, interest, which some of them are doing, they're never going to survive. Some of these special finance companies that they, they ask for, it's crazy. They ask for $5,000 fees. Uh, I mean, the customers are paying five to $7,000 profit or not profit, but cost and fee just to get their loan done. Now they never know that. Because the, 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 the dealership's never going to tell them that. But you just, I believe in good business. And I believe good business will breed good business. There's, there's plenty of good business out there without chasing dirty business. I've seen what you were talking about. I mean, and it is, it's, it is predatory lending. And it, people just get absolutely buried in their auto. And you're not going to have a return customer. You make loans like that. Because they're just never going, they're going to be so flipped forever that they're going to end up at a token note lottery. It's going to wreck their credit. They're not going to be able to make payments. It's just. It, you, it's it's a tragedy. You ruin their life, and uh, you, you do. Fair, you know, at least. Well, that's uh, it made me very hopeful. I, I mean, that was all some pretty good news actually for the industry. I, I think that the uh, people in our line of work probably need to hear that because there's some there's some people out there whose morale is are pretty bad. You know, some stores have done better than others, and some guys are still having a uh, hell of a time because they're in states that have such strict lockdowns. Yeah, it's it's um it's easy for us that are successful and that have uh, you know that live in, for instance, in Houston instead of an area with a with where there's no jobs. It's easy for us to talk about the good times, uh, and it it you have to um, um, you have to feel that uh, you know these these folks that don't have good dealerships, that don't have good brands, or they don't have good customer base, you understand what they're having to go through. So we have to value what we have here in a you know fourth largest city in America. Um, I will say this though: that, I mean, there's areas of the country where car dealerships are, you know, are are uh, uh, they're struggling, and there's people in the industry that are struggling. But you know, you just—I've always figured out that one thing about the car business is, and I struggled when I first got into it. Couldn't figure out whether I liked it or not. I mean, I had customers cussing me out. I mean, I've literally had people refuse to shake my hand and look at me like, you know, it was just crazy. I had people accusing me of lying. They didn't even know me. I mean, some in some cases, I hadn't even left the bumper of the car when they were doing. So here's my point, is that people that work in dealerships are extremely resilient. They're very tough. 
they're 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 they have a positive mental attitude by definition. Otherwise, they couldn't come up and get up in the morning for sales, for instance, not knowing if they're even going to make a dime that day. They can get up and they literally can work for free. You do that for thirty days, and your your butt's out of there, and they're going to find you know they're going to put somebody else in your seat. So they have to have a positive attitude. They have to be aggressive. They have to understand that hey. This one didn't work out, but you know what? There's another one out there. And they got to literally walk up to a stranger, put up their best smile, put their hand out, do their best job of the business, look them in the eye, ask them for the business. And then if they do that right, and they do it 10, 15, 20 times a month, they're going to make a good living. They're going to be able to feed their family. So you just have to keep keep getting up and going to work. And if you got to work six days a week, bell to bell, you know, uh, eight mornings till eight at night or, or what have you. I mean, we've done it. I mean, I've worked. It's a grind, man. Oh, I've worked 18 hours straight. I actually know somebody in the business that, that has worked two days in a row, which is crazy. No break. You know, shuffling deals, doing paperwork, doing everything they can uh, just to make sure that that business gets in and gets in on time. So it's a, it's a tough business, but it's resilient. And I have a lot of confidence in the, you know, the people that I know that are in the business. I know what they're doing. You talked about the, the new normal with, within the auto industry and, and what that outlook might be what are some of the i hate to use the word prediction but what do you see in the patterns that have happened over the last few months that could very well be a quote-unquote new normal and i preface that with the understanding that this show and and our definition of the new normal right our truth behind the new normal is that it's a mindset shift that the new normal tends to have this very negative connotation right we have the shoe bomber so now we have to take off our shoes at, at the airport we've had you know uh, we have to wear masks. That's the new normal for, for some people. But from our perspective, the new normal gives an opportunity for preparedness, for financial preparedness, for physical preparedness through martial arts. We've talked about that uh, briefly. What are some of the things that you're seeing in the auto industry that could become a new normal that benefits the customer? Oh, well, I already touched on them a little bit. Um, the customer's in a much better negotiating position than they have been. Uh, I have a friend of mine that lived in Missouri City, wanted to get a BMW, and um, um, she, she was a little reticent to go shopping. And the bottom line is, is, I said, hey, look, you can do all this online. Pick up the phone and call your old dealer. Tell them to give you a quote on the payments. Tell them to give you a quote on the price. Uh, she wanted a lease. Uh, they quoted her a payment that was $100 more than what she wound up spending. And uh, I thought that was great. She was in complete control. They brought it to her. Uh, everything is as she wished. And, and I think that's one of the new normals you're going to see with the customer being a little bit more in control, maybe a lot more in control, depending upon the dealership. Some dealerships, <clears throat> depending on their customer base, if they're going straight to the bottom and they're bottom feeding with their customers, um, that's not going to be the new normal for those customers. But they're still going to demand that those customers come in and they're still going to play the same negotiating strategy that I've done in the past. But the, the, the dealerships that are smart, that are well-run, uh, some of whom are owned individually or in smaller private groups, those dealerships are going to adapt quickly to the new normal. They're going to uh, negotiate in good faith. They're going to do what they say they're going to do. They're going to deliver the cars to the customer if the customer demands that. It depends on how long the virus or the threat of the virus hangs around as to how much that is needed, uh, but I think once people get used to it, uh, that's going to happen anyway. And quite frankly, at my old dealership, 10, 12 years ago, if somebody picked up the phone and said, hey, man, I need to buy a Suburban and I want you to bring it to me, we'd say, fantastic, what's your address? And uh, get a price, figure it out over the phone, type it up, take it to them and get it done. So for us, the good dealers out there, this new normal 
is really good because when you have a good educated customer, uh, you're way better off than you have a customer that doesn't actually know what's going on. Uh, I think that's part of the new normal. I think service is going to improve. Uh, the rise of uh, 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 electric cars and autonomous cars is going to uh, do a lot for customers buying. Uh, there are going to be some big changes. Uh, ride sharing, Uber. Um, people are going to stop buying uh, as many cars. Uh, they're already planning on that. Construction of new parking garages uh, has already been changed over the last five years. Uh, the bottom floors of those parking garages are set up so that they can convert them to retail very quickly if and when uh, the explosion in self-driving cars and electric cars takes place. Uh, one of the things that's going to affect the service department is if a self-driving car pulls into the service department get an oil change, you can't upsell them. <laughs> I mean, how do you upsell a car? <laughs> you know? and, it, and it's very and it's very difficult, you know, so that's going to be something that everybody's going to have to adapt. I think uh, the bigger dealerships are going to get bigger and the smaller dealerships are going to be absorbed or they're going to go away. What are some of the things that you're seeing from, from the psychology internally in some of these dealerships that haven't pivoted quite so quickly like what what are some of the what are some of the tips and tools that you might lend a, a car dealership who's struggling and not marketing the right way be it through social media or through their website through online advertising radio television what are some of the things that you might suggest to that dealership who's struggling right now to to figure out what the next strategy is for them well i think what one of the most important things is to do more with less. Okay. I think they need less people on the payroll. Uh, I think your cost structure has to be tightly controlled. There's no question about it. You've got to watch your advertising. Advertising can really get away with you uh, or away from you. I had a real problem with my you know, first dealership that I bought. I had to totally rebuild one of the worst dealerships in the United States. And uh, the reason you guys have heard of me, because I spent a couple of million dollars a year on advertising or more, uh, plus another million dollars a year on charitable just to rebuild that dealership. And uh, so that's an expense that is very tough. You don't need that expense if you don't destroy the reputation of your dealership to begin with, all right? So I happened to take one over that was in the dumps and had the worst reputation in the country. I had to spend that money. But if you've got a great functioning business, whether it's small, medium, or large, keep that reputation, keep the customer close to you. It's a whole lot cheaper to take care of a customer on an oil change or a brake job or whatever the case may be, than it is for you to go find a new customer and rebuild that new relationship. It's a whole lot cheaper to sell a customer five, 10 or 15 cars than it is to go find a new customer because you only sold them one car. And my theory always was, is I don't want to sell you one car. I want to sell you, you know, cars for a lifetime. All right. So not a car one time, car for a lifetime. That's a very simple philosophy. All right. I want to sell you a bunch of cars. I want to sell you family cars. I want to sell you friends cars. I'm going to sell their friends' cars. It's kind of like friending somebody on Facebook. Next thing you know, you're friends with a bunch of people you don't know. If you sell a car the right way, that will also happen. Because you know, it's funny. It's, it's, you know, people make me look like a hero because I do business the right way. And I look at people and I look them in the eye, tell them what I'm going to do, shake their hand, and then I back it up. Too many dealers don't do that. If you just do that, your business model is going to succeed. That solves every problem. Just handle that customer in front of you and, and the rest of it's easy. You learn more about people than you do products and services. You will be unusually successful. That's a quote from one of my business coaches, Danny Johnson, that talks a lot about understanding people's personalities and understanding what motivates them. So can you talk to me a little bit about from a sales perspective, what, what sort of 
mental and intestinal fortitude does someone have to have not only as a as a auto dealer but just in life like what are some of the things mentally that you are doing day to day to prepare yourself for the next new cycle that's happening in, in our world what are some of the things that you do to keep yourself active mentally and physically uh well I, you know from a business standpoint when you when you get up in the morning you know your day actually started a long, long time before you get up right you you've got to go to bed with a smile on your face and understand that tomorrow's going to be a good day i mean and it, it you just have to do that in sales I like if, that. You, if you can't do it in sales and you can't do it in life in general you're going to be miserable nobody's going to want to be around you customers aren't going to they're going to run from you you'll you you see that in guys lot that greet a customer and you know they're negative you're trying to pump them up and you try to make sure they go out there with a good smile on their face and they're happy but sometimes inevitably you'll see them shake hands to a customer and 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 talk to the customer and the customer turns around and leave usually that means that there's a problem with the connection between that person and the customer uh because it's a it's a rare individual that won't pay attention to you for you know for two minutes most customers decide if they're going to do business with you right then um, staying mentally sharp, you got to smile. You got to look them in the eye. You got to be positive. You have to. The funny thing is, is this is one of the reasons you need to exercise because you need to be in shape when you when you when you greet that customer. You need to. The customer needs an air of strength and health from you. All right. If you're you know, unhappy and God forbid you smoke cigarettes and, and and you and you wind up talking to a customer most days. I mean, some salespeople just don't understand that the smell of a cigarette turns most people off these days. Oh yeah, for sure. That's a new normal from 30 years ago, right? Or 40 years ago. So, you know, you got to be healthy. You got to be strong. You got to be confident. Uh, I think that applies to life in general. If you can go through life like that, um, you're going to have a better time than people that are not. Um, you know, most people are not leaders, but you can still adapt the quality of leaders and of leadership to help you get through the day. You may not want to take charge of everything in your office, but if you have a bright smile, a positive attitude, you make eye contact with people and you try not to complain, you know, try not to complain when you go home either. Cause that doesn't help you either, no. but, but figure, figure out what will winnow that stress away from your body. For me, it's always been martial arts ever since I was 16 years old. That is what puts a smile on the face. That's what's keeping me happy. That drains a lot of the excess anger and aggression from me, although it's not 100% successful. But at the same time, that's what keeps me going. So I recommend people, you know, find something they love and pour their heart and soul into it. And if they don't love their job, which is unfortunate, but not everybody is lucky enough to love their job. But if they don't love their job, do the job, do it, be happy, and then go do something you love. It could be soccer, it could be tennis, it could be basketball, it could be reading. I love to read. I spend a lot of time doing that. It could be political discussions. It could be anything. But the thing is, is, is find an outlet, find something you love and, and, you know, find that third place. You know, if you, if you have home and you have work, find that third place. It may be church. It may be a, a you know, a gym, a martial arts gym. It may be uh, the tennis courts. It may be, you know, maybe a social club. Hopefully it's not a bar because that doesn't do you any good. Mm. And 15 minutes in it, that's fine. But if you spend 15 hours a week in a bar, yeah. uh, that's not going to be very healthy for you. Absolutely. So for, for our listeners who are not watching this video uh, on YouTube or, or Facebook where we upload the videos and are listening, Don is wearing a Brazilian jiu-jitsu workout shirt that says stay rooted. And Don, 
Can you tell me a little bit about that? What, what does stay rooted for you mean? And, and you've talked about being in martial arts since you were 16. I took martial arts when I was in middle school, high school. I was in the army for eight years. I'm a practitioner of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, Quinton, law enforcement background, martial arts background. What does is, what is stay rooted for you guys mean? Well, I think one of the most important things in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but in life in general, is to maintain balance, right? And so when you're on the floor in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, somebody's always trying to take your balance. They're always trying to put you on your butt. They're trying to put you on your back. Uh, If you're on top of them, they want to sweep it and reverse that situation, and they want to be on top. I think that's a great metaphor for life. All right. I mean, people, if you have money, people are always trying to take it. Uh, if you have a parking space, they're trying to take it. Right. So you've got to be able to maintain a balance between work, between home, between uh, recreation or, or whatever, you know, turns you on. You have to be balanced. And uh, it's funny because, uh, you know, stay rooted. I mean, uh, for me, that's that's being grounded. And one of the greatest things I've always loved about martial arts and what is important to me until I bought a dealership, I spent you know, millions of dollars of, uh, of money on advertising. And I, I was, you know, seated in the local community and people looked at me as a leader in the local community. But one of the pitfalls of that is you're never sure if you're getting the truth from somebody. Well, you're never sure if people are trying to latch on to you for an ulterior motive. And the great thing about martial arts training is once you cross the threshold of the door and you walk in and you put your gear on and you get on the mat, Nobody cares about any of that. And I regularly get my butt handed to me by guys and girls that are half my age that could care less how successful I am or what I do for a living. All they know is that I am their brother on the martial arts mat and they are there to train. And yeah. is it, it's funny because people think we fight, but we don't fight. We love each other. Yeah. And we really do. And we have some of the best relationships you'll ever find. And so that balance and that happiness and the closeness that comes out of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is just amazing. I wish everybody could do it. And, you know, we, I know we're going to talk about some of the current situations in the country. If we could get a lot of these law enforcement officers training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I know of two sure. that would not have happened here recently if they had been well-trained martial arts. One, because their moral character would be better. And two, because they would be better equipped with some of the situations that are thrown out. And Lord knows I don't want to have to face those situations individually, but I'd love to be able to preach the gospel of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for these law enforcement agents that need it. Love it. I mean, it's a word that's not often used, especially in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but there's an intimacy of being locked up with someone and having to literally think through, slow down. That was one of the very first things that I remember learning when I first started out because I went in there all gun ho I thought I was going to make someone tap on the first go and I exerted so much energy just trying to go for the tap and the very first thing that I, I had to get ingrained in me was slow down think it through work out the problem you're not going to get hurt as much as you think you are if you just stop take a breath Think about everything you're going to do because everyone's so scared of getting in a, in a chokehold of some sort. They're always afraid of getting, you know, put it, put in some sort of rear naked choke. And if you just know the techniques, if you know how to position yourselves, you can stay locked up for a long time. And it's that intimacy and that closeness that you know that the partner that you're sparring with isn't going to hurt you and that they're going to walk you through. And I've had many people on the other side of the mat that are just, they tell me, slow down. 
Take a breath. Think about where your placement is. Yeah, move your left leg. No, see, see what's happening. Move over. See, now you got me, right? And we're working that problem out together. And then when we're on the mat and the timer's going, then we get to you know actually go at it and practice everything that we've learned. But the biggest takeaway that I've gotten was, and even in reading Stoic philosophy, is just slow down and be still. Yeah, absolutely. Bruce Lee talks about being like water, right? Just be yeah. fluid and, and be conscious of what's happening. So many people, and, and I think to your point, so many law enforcement officers are so in the moment that they are so caught off guard with what's happening. And, and I think this, this begs the question of, you know, reform versus just complete dismantling of, of our justice system and reforming it to, to have better education. And, and is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu a part of that? I think Jocko Wilnick would be very pleased. partner depending on the situation we learn how to put that person under so much pressure that they learn how to adapt to that pressure they either you know some of them are going to quit right some people they're just not made for having a 200 pound dude on top of them trying to squeeze the life out of them that's not their idea of fun on a on a sunday but it was mine today i went an hour and a half today rolled seven rounds had a great time but you learn how to handle pressure and we've got girls in our gym that are just fantastic deadly competitors 115 pounds and they'll go with me i'm 185 they'll go with guys that are 220 and i put pressure on one of our little blue belts the other day and she's just a killer man she's just a just a great great competitor very very strong and i was putting pressure on her putting more pressure than what i would normally do on a 120 pound woman but i wasn't hurting her but i was definitely putting pressure and afterwards i said how'd you like that how'd you like all the pressure she goes man that was a lot of pressure i said but you know what you can handle it and 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 i did that on purpose and you know she did a fantastic job she adapted she controlled it she had no problem with it whatsoever and she learned she's calm and she was cool under pressure so why can't we apply that to the law enforcement community in general they're under a ton of pressure right now and there's cops tapping out left and right and that scares me for this country because they shouldn't have to do that so we need to learn how as a country to be able to uh, understand what sort of pressures they're under. And, and quite frankly, these departments, you know, you talk about defunding the police departments. No, don't defund the police department. Get them some money so they can learn how to handle these unarmed situations and then, and then not have to resort to that. If, like, for instance, the, the, the Richard Brooks issue in Atlanta, I watched when those two guys were trying to grapple with a bigger, stronger man, or certainly a, a, a more athletic man that managed to turn the tables on them. And uh, one of the one of the police officers appeared to be able uh, appeared to be trying to put a, a figure four lock, a Kimura, on on the gentleman, and just completely failed. All right, uh, his body was out of position. I watched it happening. He didn't understand what was happening, and he could be a jujitsu guy that was just doing it wrong, or was pressured, couldn't. Get it handled in time they were certainly very surprised at the turn of events with that gentleman but if we could get everybody i mean cops are cops for 30 years right 
Uh, I mean, if we want them to understand mental and physical pressure, let's start them out as soon as they begin. Let's make it mandatory. I mean, they're, they're you know, from a, from a physical standpoint, they're certainly usually one percenters, right? They're in great shape. They're willing to do the things mentally that you and I aren't willing to do necessarily, although Quentin did. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that we've, you know, we've got to improve training from a physical standpoint. I believe that training will build, although I don't believe, I believe almost all police officers have great character. There, there are certainly people that are undervalued in society. However, all of us can use more physical training. All of us can use more mental training. All of us can understand that we can be tougher and stronger. We don't have to give in to that pressure. I think it, and I have several police officers that support me that are friends of mine that uh, are really, really enthusiastic about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as a, as a game changer for police departments. And I, I think it needs to be, if not mandatory, I think it needs to be heavily encouraged. Uh, I think the police departments themselves need to fund it. Um, I think they need to pay police officers more so that they don't have to work two or three jobs in order to support their families. Uh, and I think they need to be paid, you know, uh, or, or at least given the option of having, you know, five to seven hours a week on a jujitsu mat learning how to handle themselves in a one-on-one situation. Um, I, you know, I just can't, I just can't believe that what happened in Atlanta happened. It didn't have to happen, you know, and, and, uh, we need to do some more research into other non-lethal uh, uh, alternatives to the taser. I mean, I think we've all figured out that the taser isn't 100% reliable. Quinn, talk to me yeah. a little bit about the, the training that you've had to go through in, in your law enforcement background. And why, why, if it isn't, why isn't it mandatory to have this more explosive, even, even Krav Maga is, is another great example of just that explosive takedown and, and getting someone away and, and dis, disarming them in, in a very explosive way. Why is it not instituted more regularly in police training to do something like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu that gets people to slow down and think and react without the need for reaching for the gun as, as the last resort? So you have to remember that not all departments are the same because municipalities, uh, just, just individual municipalities govern uh, differently, uh, than one another. Um, and definitely not all States are the same. So training across the country varies greatly. Um, now I will say in the state of Texas, it is mandatory. Um, you do have to take pretty extensive, uh, martial arts training when you're in the police academy. One of the, and, and I'm going to get into the OODA loop aspect of, of threat analysis and reaction to threat here in a second, but going into why officers probably don't train more when they're on the job. It's probably because, you know, when we're off, we either have extra jobs that, you know, you, you have to work because your pay is so poor. And, you know, talking about defunding police departments, it's going to affect pay because they're going to have to require the same level of protection, the same type of equipment they're providing right now. Those costs aren't going down. They're going to remain the same. But they have to make cuts somewhere, right? So it's going to come out of pay and personnel. So you're, you're going to see cities that are much more unsafe. And you're going to see cops that are much more prone to corruption. You know, if you, if you like the Mexican style of policing, you know, that, that's what you'll have here if we start to be fun. Um, and you're going to have cops more willing to take a bribe. Maybe that's what they want. We talked about anarcho-tyranny, and we've talked about um, potentially 
um, engaging in fourth, fifth gen warfare, you know, that would be a pretty good way to institute it. And if we are starting to have internal issues as a country going to some sort of warlord state, you know, which is, you know, what you see in Chaz, you're going to see that situation just become more aggravated as you defund police. You're, you're going to see uh, just rife corruption. If people think it's bad now, just wait. It's, it's going to get 10 times worse. But cops are, are just overworked. You know, when I was a police officer, and I've worked in the auto industry too, I, 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 uh, I sold for a long time. And uh, I've never worked harder than when, when I was a cop. I mean, I, I, I worked, um, you know, could be 100 hours a week at, at some points. Um, I've, I've worked three days straight, you know, OSHA regulations and requirements, they do not apply to you. You are critical, right? And, and, you know, you have to lift a 400 pound dead person. Well, that's too bad. If nobody's there to help you, you don't get a team lift, you know, it's, it's just, or you got to pull somebody out of a burning car. You know, what, what does OSHA say about that? And probably shouldn't do it, but we, we have to, and the job is a grind. It's, it's mentally taxing. You're working an extreme amount. You have you still have a home life you have to try to maintain. You've, you've got to eat. you got to take care of yourself. It becomes very difficult. And then you have to deal with just every time you get called. And I wasn't a traffic cop. I worked for a bigger department. Uh, you've got traffic division in most departments. And you have, you know, calls for service. And you have actual patrolmen. Some departments, uh, you know, the patrolmen is a jack of all trades. They do all of it. I, I didn't do traffic. I, I did mainly calls for service. And so, you know, Anytime you get called, it's it's that person's worst day of their life. And you see that it becomes your new normal, right? This intense, overwhelming negativity. Um, you see the worst scenes, like there are just things that you cannot scrub out of your mind. You know, they will be with you forever. And on top of that, you have to continue going to uh, your educational classes that the uh, state requires. So you have this continuing ed, uh, you know, load that's, that's pretty extreme. And a lot of it has to do with cultural diversity or crisis intervention training. Um, believe it or not, shooting isn't really uh, probably one of those things that you have to qualify yearly. And that's some officers. It's the only training they get on the firearm all year is that, is that yearly qualification. Others might take it upon themselves to train outside of work and, and become more proficient with the firearm. There's a lot of guys that take that uh, type of dedication to training. They transition it to martial arts as well, but that's on your own time, whatever, whatever time that is, you know, and a lot of part departments are poorly funded and they don't have a gym and they don't have an ability to, uh, you know, um, maintain a facility that would allow training. Um, so it's not like that could really occur at the department. It's a liability issue too. I mean, nobody wants a cop to get injured off duty uh, training at the department. So a lot of departments would just probably refuse to facilitate it in the first place. Um, but you've got, you have all of these issues. And then on top of it, you're, you're, you're having to train in things the state have deemed important, right? And you're not, you're not really keeping up with the physical aspect of the job where you do that the most is on the job. And that's, that's unfortunate, but most people are, are keeping up with their training and their mental acuity and their threat analysis by um, practicing it live, you know, and, and that may be why you're seeing some of these things occur. I was a martial artist before I went to law enforcement. I continued training when I was in law enforcement, we had extensive training in the police Academy, but like I said, for most people, it just stops. Um, I don't see a way to really institute more effective training with that. I will say this. 
I don't like what happened in Atlanta. I think the situation probably could have been handled differently um, in, in the communication and the command presence and how they interacted with the suspect. But once you take a taser, you know, if you look at, at the threat assessment, when somebody takes a less than lethal weapon from you, you are legally authorized to take, you know, deadly force. If they assault a police officer, that's felony assault on a peace officer. So they're a fleeing felon. Now they're a fleeing felon with a weapon. A real problem. Do they use it on you? Now they have access to a gun. Do they use it on somebody else? Do they create a hostage situation with it? You don't know. None of these things at that time you could possibly know. You do know that if they use it on you and they've already assaulted you, you're probably looking at a situation where that person's going to kill you because you're going to be incapacitated. They're going to go for your gun. They're probably going to kill you. They've already they've already committed a serious felony. Now he could have. People say, well, he could have reached for his gun if they, if he wanted to do that. Maybe we don't. I don't. I can't see in the video where the taser really was. I, I haven't seen the full thing to be honest with you either because I just been un- overloaded with all the other cases but it, it, i've seen part of it it's been described to me and um you know it might have been the weapon of opportunity the suspect took i don't it was know for sure weapon of opportunity because in in the video where you see the body cam i mean they're on the floor i mean the camera's rolling back and forth and you can audibly hear the officer saying let go of the taser let go he's going for the taser let go of the taser and then he's got the taser and then they're starting yeah. to run so it was definitely so, an opportunity so, yeah. for him to grab something so that was probably just the closest weapon to his hands when, when he was uh, fumbling around. And the taser, to deactivate the taser holster, is actually much easier than to try to deactivate a, a level three holster, especially from the point of view of a suspect where you're facing the officer and you don't have access to the switches on the back. It's going to be very hard for you to actually take a gun from somebody. Um, but, but once they have that less than lethal, I don't care if it's a baton, if it's spray, if it's a taser, it can incapacitate you. And then there's always going to be that weapon you carry in play. So that's the argument I'm pretty sure that officer is going to take is, you know, well, I brought the weapon to the fight and he engaged in this manner, took my lesson lethal based on this, you know, use of force uh, uh, continuum or the OODA loop, you know, I made the decision to go to lethal. He already committed a felony. He was running. He had a weapon. Uh, it was a lot of unknowns. Then he's going to get off. He's going to get acquitted of that. He's probably going to get back pay from Atlanta PD. He's going to be reinstated. He might just choose to leave at that point. Um, but he, he's going to get off from this because I, I know how this is going to play out. He's probably just going to get no bill. Um, because legally and from the perspective of that officer, I actually don't think from that point on, I don't think he, he made a mistake. Now, how it was handled from the beginning led to that, right? But again, there was nothing that he probably did out of policy. There was probably nothing that he did that was illegal. It just looks bad. And, you know, optics are, are very important when you're – when you're an officer, you, you cannot disregard that. You, yeah, you can't disregard how the public. Yeah. You cannot disregard. It's, it's always about optics. You can't disregard how the public views you, uh, how you behave in public, uh, your interactions with the public, you know? So that's important. It's important from a PR standpoint, but it, but it doesn't mean a whole lot to a DA and it, it's not going to mean a whole lot to a grand jury. Probably they're going to look at the letter of the law. And they're going to look at uh, the probable cause, and they're just not going to have it. So, you know, that, that case is bad. You know, could it have been prevented with, with better martial arts skills? You know, probably, probably. But I just don't know where you would institute it. And they're talking about having a longer police academy. I don't necessarily I'm, – I'm not against that. I, I, I actually – I don't think that the police academy was too short. You would be amazed at how much you learn. 
uh, in those weeks. It's 800 hours. You're in a classroom 12 hours a day. It's very intensive. They do try to weed you out. It's not like everyone gets to pass. It's, it's a difficult thing. And, um, you know, I, I don't see how they're going to fix that. A lot of departments are also canceling classes and they're canceling academies because of COVID. So that's going to aggravate the problem. Um, I, I wish that officers had more time and I wish they were, if, you know, I think you could fix a lot of this with pay. You're not going to fix it defunding the departments, but if you paid officers better where they could live a decent life, you know, where they were, you know, in Houston, you know, you struggle to make ends meet as a cop because the cost of living is so high. So they didn't have that worry. Maybe they could get a membership to the gym or maybe they could have more time off to spend on continuing ed and martial arts. But with all of these combined, you're, you're, no matter what they do, just because of the nature of the job, you're always going to have some sort of um, personal strife with, a, with an officer because their, their family lives are suffering as they're required to go through more of this training. So it's, it's a really interesting situation. I am glad I got out of law enforcement. Uh, I, I did it on the la I did it in the last war on cops. I was just, I had enough of it. Um, and I knew this day was coming. I mean, this is, this is no surprise to me. I think it's going to get worse. Um, because I, the, one of the reasons I, I gave for why I was resigning, I said, you know, this is, this is not going away. This is going to continue to escalate and it's going to be a problem for the nation. And I want to have a family. I, and, and you're not even going to see in the future, you're not going to see that hard-boiled, uh, you know, gumshoe cop who's just burnt out because he's done it for 20 years. You're going to see 25-year-old kids with serious PTSD and serious problems like they were in a war zone because the type of stuff you're seeing. And you're going to burn them out before you even get five years out of them. Yeah. And, and, and then you're going to have to deal with them. And there's no federal aid for them. There's no VA for them. There's no counseling when they get out. You've got guys that are going to get out of this a total wreck. There's not going to be any help from the government and they are dangerous. These are, these are individuals that probably should take, you know, there's a reason we treat veterans the way we do now. We learned a lot of lessons from Vietnam, but you're going to be seeing officers that are going to have situations that it, they're faced with that, that are, that are very bad. And then they're going to be treated by the public even worse than anything we ever saw during, you know, Vietnam. And they're going to have no support. And they're going to have very support, little support from their friends and family, and, and the government isn't going to help them at all. And these are guys that they trained and they tuned up to be, you know, very aggressive, very good with weapons, and, you know, potentially very violent. And, and they're going to be probably unleashed on the country here really soon because a lot of them are going to leave. And so I, I think we need to do something. I just, I just don't know what that is. Yeah, and we've got a couple headlines here. I mean, this is this is just from last week. The entire South Florida SWAT team resigns after chief of police and local officials took a knee to protesters who called for investigations into a draw, drawn-in raid, which which killed a. This is in reference to believe. Yeah, this this is with George Floyd in mind. And then we have another headline here from The Hill: Seven Minneapolis police officers resign amid the George Floyd protest. And we're starting to see a lot more of these headlines where police are just, especially with, with the Chaz situation, and we'll get into that in just a second, but after that precinct burned down, there's stories of police officers just saying, I'm not coming back. Like, they're not even going to the HR department and, and doing an exit interview. They're just not coming back. And this right. is a serious problem that we're going to have to see. You know, they're, they're calling for disbandment of police. They're calling for Defunding, I think ultimately, and we're watching some of these videos from 
very far left organizations that are indoctrinating middle school and high school children to organize these protests, they're calling for the abolishment of, of law enforcement. And the ironic thing, and this is what kills me, um, Alexandra Cortez was in one of these Zoom calls with some of these on the ground leaders. And in her statement, it just, it threw me through a loop because she says, if you want to know what not having police is going to look like, look at an affluent white community. And I thought about that. I had to take a step back and I was like, what is she talking? Wait, she's talking about a gated community, meaning you have to have access to get in or out, some sort of identification, some sort of deed, some sort of identifying marker that says you can be in that quote unquote affluent white neighborhood. It's a gated community with private security. So what is she talking about? What is it that they want? Don? We are supported by Aerial Digital. Aerial Digital is a full service digital marketing agency that specializes in custom design websites for small to medium sized businesses. Whether you need a simple one page bootstrap website or you're ready to start selling your products online with an e-commerce website, Aerial Digital is equipped to help your business. Go to aerialdigitalmarketing.com slash new normal. That's A-R-I-E-L digitalmarketing.com slash new normal and save 20% on your custom website today. So Dom, what, what is your take on that? I mean, with, with the police training, with everything that Quentin just referred to as, as essentially they're just overburdened with training and trying to keep up with the finances. I mean, we've, we've hear the stories of so much divorce. I mean, even a correctional officer in, in our local prisons here gets burned out on the job within a few months. I mean, the horrors that they're seeing, the things that they have to put up with, and we're asking yeah. to take their money away and, and to put more training onto them. Where's the solution in this? Well, it, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very big believer in the support of law enforcement. I empathize with the, the job that they have. Uh, I understand that if there is a bad element to law enforcement, it is certainly less than the average bad element that we all deal with on a day-to-day basis in whatever job we may have. The difference is, is the police are armed. And it's just as Quentin referred to, you know, you have people that are highly trained, are used to dealing with uh, people that are in hush, you know, with, with a, a People that call the cops, you don't want to call them all perpetrators, right? But you, but when police officers are used to dealing with someone who has mental health issues or, or is a criminal or whatever the case may be, they are under a severe amount of stress. And then, you know, the shooting that happened in Atlanta, that decision was made in a split second. Most human beings cannot comprehend the speed of, of what exactly happened. And it went from zero to 100 in 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 the in, in the blink of an eye, and um, there maybe could have been a better way to uh, uh, to let the gentleman know that he was under arrest. I think there was a, it was a little abrupt, just reaching out and grabbing his arm. I think he probably could have had a little better one on one interaction, but they had been there for twenty or thirty minutes. I don't believe that they thought they had someone who was going to turn violent. Um, however, it happened. It happened. The, the George Floyd incident, I wanted to crawl through my phone and 
kill the guy that had his knee on George Floyd. I, I, I was so incensed at what was taking place. And that, you know, quite frankly, and I hate, I hate to keep going back to it, that was a jiu-jitsu. That was, we, we use that all the time in jiu-jitsu, knee on belly. Oh, man, knee on carotid artery and on your jaw when you're pressing a guy's face down into the pavement and, you know, you've got your weight directly on top of them. I mean, to me, it was murder, all right? Yeah. Now, we're not talking about, when we talk about rank-and-file police officers, they are not rank-and-file police officers. That guy, Chauvin, does not represent the police departments in the United States. He is, you know, from my, from my view, he's, a, he's a, either a psychopath or, or sadistic or however you want to call it. Those are not the everyday police officers. Everyday police officers live right next door to us. Some of the best people I know are law enforcement officers i train with one five six days a week he happens to be a local uh, uh works for the constable's department another good friend of mine works for a major police department here in town she's a wonderful jiu-jitsu practitioner is one of the most loyal uh, 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 uh high character individuals i've ever met another friend of mine is you know he's a police officer one of the funniest guys i've known he's a fifth degree black belt He's written uh, a book. He's, he's a joy to be around. He's a human being. And we have to support them in this effort. I absolutely believe they need to be paid more. They need time with their families. They all work. I mean, if they're not working 70, 80 hours at their, at their municipal job, they're working another 20, 30 hours in security. I know because I owned a huge dealership and we employed law enforcement officers from all around Fort Bend County. And, and I chose them specifically because I knew I could pay them a good wage and I would take care of them and they could depend on their job at my dealership. And they were very grateful for it. And quite frankly, I think the country needs to you know, do a pivot on what they're dealing with right now, that we do not need to be grinding the police officer's face in the dirt. We need to turn around and make sure that they have support. The best way we can get better policing is to take care of the current police officers. Hey, do we, do we want unarmed people shot? No, we don't. Nobody does. The police officers don't. You know, the public doesn't. Certainly the people that are getting shot, they don't want to be dead, right? Well, the only way that we're going to be able to figure this out is to work together. And, and Quentin is very right. We, you know, the country is fracturing right now. And all you're going to do by disbanding police departments is you're going to get more and more trouble with those police departments. And the deal they got in Minneapolis right now, but they're going to, they're going to send out marriage counselors to domestic services. Uh, all I can tell you is there's going to be some real unhappy marriage counselors. Are going to get, they're going to get pounded into the pavement if they don't get killed. And yeah, they're, they're going to get killed. I mean, the, the most dangerous call you can go on is, uh, is, you know, family violence. And, um, I've, you know, there's, there's things that on, on the job that are potentially life threatening that you deal with every day. That's one when, you know, like, you get called the stuff like husband just stabbed wife, wife just stabbed husband, you know, husband's got wife at gunpoint and vice versa. Um, you get called to that stuff and it's, it's not super uncommon. Like people think this is a really uncommon thing, but it's, it's really not. And it is the most dangerous situation you're going to find yourself in. And as soon as you've got to take, you know, somebody to jail, the other person immediately turns into their defender and now they're your enemy and they're going to jump on your back as you're taking the person out of the house and cuffs or they're going to try to stab you or shoot you. And I, I don't even see, I don't even know how this person's going to make arrest because are they, are they sending them to violent calls? Are they sending them just to like husband and wife disputes? I, I don't really know what the protocol is going to be there. And a lot of times you've got a wife or a husband who 
is scared that the other person is going to off them. So they make it seem like it's really mild just to get the cop there. So maybe a cop doesn't go and now it's a marriage counselor and they get shot in the face. <laughs> you know, so it's, I don't, I don't know how that's going to work, but uh, it's. There was an incident right here in, in, in Fort Bend County a few years ago where two young children witnessed their father kill their mother right on the spot. How can you send anybody other than an individual that's trying to deal with violent offenders? How can you send anybody? It's murder to send that person out to deal with a guy that would kill his wife in front of two, in front of his two children, much less kill his children. I mean, that's a reality that that's out there. I mean, you yeah, talk about police involved shootings. There's a whole lot more in shootings that are not, the police don't get involved in them until after they're done. And uh, it's a bad situation. A family violence situation where a husband had a, his wife, uh, well, I just she was he was torturing her for days, like really seriously. I mean, like something you'd see in a movie. Wow. Um, and I mean, we had to. I mean, we had to like it was a hostage extraction, you know. And and she, it, it was just a bad deal. I cannot imagine, you know, what we had to do to get this woman. Uh, what we had to do to get her husband was was not something you could send a counselor to do. You'd have to send somebody that was trained in hostage extraction to do right. something like that. And I just, it's going to end up, it's going to end up causing a lot more problems than it solves. And you know, like it's something like a thousand people a year are shot by police and there's 11 million arrests. I mean, do the math on that, how, how astronomical it actually is to get shot by the police. It's, it's, it's not obviously not unheard of, but it's, it's really, it's really unlikely, you know? So, and you've got, you got to think about it. You, you've got really bad people sitting in jail right now I mean, really bad people. If all officers were just itching to shoot somebody, you know, why, why did they even make it? Why did they even make it to jail in the first place? Would, right. you know, when the cop arrests them, this person's a murderer or a rapist or whatever. I don't know. You know, so with the whole George Floyd thing, you know, I've talked about that in the past. Um, that's, that was, I agree with you. It's a pretty bad deal. I mean, it, it, it was a, that, that's a real ugly thing. I would have never personally done it. Um, I don't really know anybody that I worked with that would have done something like that. If somebody says I can't breathe, it's probably as long as you've got them secure and they're not a threat to themselves or they're not a threat to somebody else immediately in that moment, it's probably a good idea to let them up and take a breath. I mean, it's six seconds. Yeah. It's not ever a good idea to do that. It's, 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 it's malicious. I will say this. My biggest concern is if, if it comes out that George Floyd did indeed die of an OD and he, he did not, you know, the autopsy never said that he was strangled and he didn't have a blood choke because all three of us know that that doesn't take long at all to succeed. Um, so he wasn't strangled, didn't have a blood choke. I really don't know how much Derek Chauvin contributed to his death and the knee to the neck. The position might have, the, the position on his stomach like that could have, if he was already going into respiratory distress, which led to asphyxia, which is what they said happened, it's probably not a good position to have him in. But to be honest with you, I think it's going to be really hard to convict him. And I, I don't know under, you know, this is in Minnesota, right? So I don't know under their statutes if they violated the law. It, you know, from an outsider's perspective, looking at that video, it definitely looks like they violated human decency, right? It, and it, and it's, it's ugly. I don't know if they violated the law. And I think that's why a lot of people are chanting F12, F12, you know, and, and they, they don't want it to go to trial. They don't want a jury. They want, you know, mob justice uh, because their, their sense of human decency has been violated. And I get that. The problem is, is once we 
go down that road and we start convicting people who actually didn't cause the death of an individual, they might not have even contributed themselves solely. Now, all four of those guys have some culpability. There's something there. I do think they're probably going to get manslaughter or something like that. But, uh, you know, you're going to end up with a situation where, for example, there's times when you use force and you use less than lethal force and it could be OC spray, it could be a taser, it could be a baton. The person's high on certain narcotics and they have what's called excited delirium. And excited delirium usually causes cardiac arrest. And so basically you've had to interact with this person and due to your interaction, you have set off a chain of events that contributed, not necessarily caused, but contributed this person's death. But they could have been a serious threat to somebody. They could have been a serious threat to the public. I've seen people high on bath salts or other, you know, substances do really terrible things to people, even people they love. So something has to be done. You can't just let them run around just merely putting cuffs on them and putting them in, in any position at that point when they're high on narcotics can actually lead to death. So my concern is what legal precedent does this set coming out of it? You know, does this really significantly hurt the ability for officers to arrest suspects? And do we end up with a police model like the UK, which is a totally failed model? People think it's a great model. There's, there's municipalities in this country that really want to copy it. It's horrible. You know, they, they basically have a, 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 an extremely high violence rate per capita now. Uh, they didn't. It was a very peaceful place. They had very low crime. Um, they have a, a pretty high rate of crime now, and they have very little ways to deal with, with suspects. They almost have to catch them in traffic, or they have to catch them going to work or something. Just bizarre to, to then apprehend them. It has to happen later. So justice, the wheels of justice turn very slowly there. And, and now they have restrictions there on freedom of speech. You can't say this. You can't say that. And, and so now the wheels of justice don't even exactly turn because victims can't even really come out and accuse their, their uh, you know, um, you know, perpetrator of, of anything because what the media might perceive this person as. So I'm really afraid that's where we're headed. I, and it really seems like that's where the media wants to take it. If, if that's the case, then given the nature of our country, you know, the United States, basically the way Western westward expansion works, the civil war, the American revolution, the frontier, the frontiersmen conquering the United States, we selected for very violent people. You have very violent and hardy people, and that's who survived that selection process on the frontier. And the United Kingdom, they selected for more docile. They're subjects, right? So they, the, the more docile person, the less likely they were to be hung at the gallows, less likely they were to rebel against the king, the more likely they were to survive and thrive in that society. You see that all across Europe. Exact opposite happened. You had selection for the most hard, badass, mean, and violent you know, people. And I come from a lot of these people. My family literally were explorers and frontiersmen. And these guys were, you know, very violent. And the way they had to survive on the frontier was, you know, it was survival every day, kill or be killed. And that was no joke. And you have these people all across the country that have those genotypes, right? Where they've got these survivor or warrior genes and they're prone to violence. They're not necessarily bad people, but they're, they're hot blooded. And I think that if we go to a more docile, you know, reactive policing process, that we're going to have just a crime wave like we've never seen before. Well, I mean, we, we've got it. We, you know, there's crime all over the United States that people that are operating in their own bubble. And there's 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 a lot of people in this country that are in a bubble right now. And and they don't understand something that if you don't have the if you don't have somebody that's willing 
to do the hardest things in life, then they're not going to get done. The other people right. that are willing to do it are going to succeed. They're going to win. They're going to do what they want to do. We have trouble c- controlling cartel violence in the United States. When the Russians began their their move into the United States, they very quickly established mobs or uh, con- you know established gangs that were able to control uh, their particular people. Very tough people join those gangs. And and right now, I mean, you know, you have MS thirteen. There there's tough people all over the United States. Ruthless people is a better word. For for it and the only people that are going to stop them are highly trained police officers and that and that's it that's all there is to it um you know they have to be you don't want sadistic people like this guy Chauvin I, I really truly believe that he caused his death I think that Floyd died from a combination of, of health factors drugs and pressure the yeah. intense amount of pressure that he was under from that particular technique it can cause you to panic and, and I felt like I was dying before, and that was eight, nine years ago, you know, and I've been doing martial arts for, or martial arts for 40 years, but jujitsu for 10 or 11 years. And if you put me in that situation, my hands behind my back, cuffed behind my back with three guys on me, one on my butt, one on my feet, one I'm leaning on my head, I could have never got out of that. And I'm good. I mean, yeah, I'm I just want to make it clear. I, Derek Chauvin and the guys that he was with, I, I do not support one one bit what they did. Yeah. I, I, that, that, that's like one of the worst displays of policing I've probably ever seen in my life. Um, my whole, my whole thing with it is, is just, man, it, it really sucks because like, I, I agree with most people, justice needs to be served. You're when, talking when more start, from the legal aspect of it though. Like, right. It, it, it's just a legal thing. And when we're taking the emotions start, out of it. Yeah. When we start manipulating the law to fit how we feel in this instance, then we're going to set legal precedents that we just can't undo. And, and there's going to be thousands of more innocent people who are killed unnecessarily because of the precedent that's set here. Also, young minority men are going to find themselves in positions more often where they're going to be associated with a circumstance they might have been involved in contributing or taking part in somebody's inadvertent death, right? And they didn't necessarily commit murder. Um, they might have just assaulted somebody or, or whatever, and that person had some sort of underlying condition. You know, it, 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 at that point, it's manslaughter. There's no, there's no first or second degree. It, 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 it's so if we, start, if we start bending the law to fit this narrative, it, then we're going to create these circumstances that's really going to adversely affect minority communities, um, but it's going to adversely affect the way we police forever. We're going to um, see consequences. I, I, We're going to see consequences yeah, regardless. Be, no matter how this plays out, yeah. there are going to be consequences that are just where I we're just witnessing. The blowback is going to be huge. The, exactly. That's and, a great and I don't support these guys. Blowback. What they did, you know, because I, I truly believe that I, you know, I truly believe that Derek Chauvin would have done this any three of us too. I actually, I actually think this was this is a guy who probably need to be off the street a long time ago. But, like, I think he would have done this to, to anybody. And that, that's really concerning. I, I don't think that this guy, you know, there was some, when you look, watch the video, there was some serious defiance in, in what he was doing and why he was doing it. And that, that disturbed me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he, it was in his eyes. It was in his body yep. language. Yeah, uh, you could see it. He knew he was being filmed. Uh, he, he, uh, he, he was enjoying it. Uh, and he felt, and, I, and I'm a firm believer in this. I, I think he caused his death by the pressure and the, and the combination of factors. I mean, you know, everything involved 
And uh, I think he knew it. I think he felt George Floyd die underneath his knee yeah. and he stayed there. That's why how, how bad I think it is. I was There's definitely no remorse in, the, in that man's face in those eight minutes that right. you're sitting there watching him. He's just like, I don't care. When well, you're around somebody who's dying, you know it, man. Like, you yeah. know it. I, the, the, I, I, I've been there. You know when somebody's dying. Like, I don't know how to describe it, but there is a feeling, an energy. I don't know what you want to call it, but if any cop who's been on the job for any period of time knows when somebody's fading out. So, like, I, ha- I have to know that he, he, he knew that. I, I can't imagine he didn't. I, I don't know. I, 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 I don't like to have to say these things and have to, and have to potentially legally defend someone like this. Yeah, oh, I couldn't imagine bad. being their, their attorney right now because it's, it's ugly all the way around. You're going to have yeah. blowback from this whole situation because you start to look at the letter of the law and not the emotions behind it, and you start to have to – talk like this where you're like, oh, this is going to be a really ugly statement, but I think he might actually get off. And then boom, the dumpster fire. Well, I will say this. Due to the nature of everything that happened, Chauvin's fate is sealed. Oh, for sure. He's sealed. If he gets out in the general population of a prison, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. The exact same thing happens to him that happened that he did to George Floyd. Mm. He, 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 he will never be able to survive. And he'll never be in general population Uh, cops. So cops never end up in general population. Even if you watch Tango and Cash. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, They're going to put you in administrative segregation and you'll be there 23 hours a day until you die. If you, if you go in for murder like this. Um, But, I'll tell you what, George Zimmerman had to go into hiding for years, and I'm, I'm sure he still is in hiding. Right. Uh, this guy, uh, there, there was a significant portion of the nation, uh, the, the significant portion of the nation that didn't necessarily identify with George, George Zimmerman, but understood why somebody could have done that or been put in that position, right? You had a significant portion of the population that kind of understood that circumstance, um, even though it was, that was another bad one. But Man, I don't know anybody that identifies with this guy or even wants to, to defend him. I mean, yeah. like, he is a social pariah and persona non grata worldwide. I mean, yeah, it, exactly. It, it, he's, he literally ranks up there with Osama bin Laden and like Stalin and Hitler. I mean, for real. Yeah, yeah. I think that that visceral emotion is one of the reasons everything exploded. Every, we all saw the same thing. Yeah. And anybody did not see that is is quite frankly blind and looks listen I, I i gave tens of thousands of dollars every year to local law enforcement particularly the sugarland pd and i love them but you have to be up they do it they were horrified every everyone every friend of mine on the force in and outside of that department were horrified at what happened and i wish the world would understand that right now yeah. the explosion against police brutality I, I understand people die, and I understand that innocent people sometimes get killed. Unarmed men normally are innocent, but maybe they didn't deserve to die if they're not innocent. However, the world has to understand we have societal issues in the United States that are unlike any other country in the world. All right. We have to be able to solve some of those societal issues, and that starts at home. And I saw a video earlier where, where Denzel Washington said, hey, it starts at home. It, yeah. you know, they're not arresting seven-year-olds and throwing them in jail. 
All right. These are older kids that are getting, you know, that are getting arrested, young men that are getting arrested because the problem started when they were very young and it was never solved. It was just exacerbated. Right. And we think of guys like Mike Tyson, that was, you know, he had a rap sheet when he was 12 years old. You know, lucky he, he got out of that. But he still committed crimes later on. Obviously, he was a convicted rapist. But the point of the matter is, is that some of these kids start very, very young. And uh, when you talk about, you know, eliminating the police department from uh, Minneapolis, I mean, Minneapolis right now looks like a war zone. And truth be told, I don't think in five or 10 years it's going to look any better. No, and you've, yeah. you've got manufacturing plants that are leaving. You've got businesses that just don't want to come back. They don't feel safe. They don't feel protected because their mayor let them down. And it's these no. predominantly Democratic-run cities. And now we're seeing what the outcome of a no-police force looks like in the Chaz or in this article that we're, we're looking at here. Confusion reigns. This is Fox News. Let me read this headline just real quick. Confusion reigns as Seattle's seized six blocks known as Chaz purportedly changes name to CHOP, C-H-O-P. We're not trying to secede. And so the article goes on to say, is it Chaz or CHOP? In the six blocks seized by Seattle protesters, there was plenty of confusion this weekend as some seek to change the name of the self-proclaimed Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone to Capitol Hill Organized or Occupied Protest. Quote, this is you not know why they're doing that. Go ahead. Yeah, they don't want to be blown you, you off the hill. You know what? Do what? They don't they want to be blown off the hilltop when, when the police right. or the government finally get tired of it. Well, it'll be, it'll be Apaches. I mean, if it, it, when you declare yourself an autonomous zone, you are in violation of the Insurrection Act. Exactly. You, you are a target of the long arm of the military. And if they wanted to play that game long term, there would be serious military action that would probably come down on them. I don't see how the government maintains legitimacy and maintains control and doesn't set an awful precedent, uh, you know, of, of anarchy without coming down on them really hard. Yeah. And we saw it over the weekend in Nashville yeah, where they were trying to set up. They were trying to set up more autonomous zones in Nashville and in Asheville, North Carolina. And you see the police officers just kind of nonchalantly taking their their barricades, their uh, pallets that they had stacked up. And they just move them off to the side of the road and and they're dismantling them rather quickly. They're not as organized or as quickly um, established as, as the Chaz or the Chop at this point. Um, this is a quote from the article. This is not an autonomous zone. We are not trying to secede from the United States, one protester said Saturday afternoon in an interview that's been circulating on Twitter. Some of the sidewalks showed chalk lettering supporting the new CHOP branding. So yeah, I think I think you're right, Quentin, that you know, there's there's a level of PR that's happening here that no, 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 we're just this is the summer of love. We just yeah. We want to get together and, and have some DJs come out here. And don't mind, uh, don't mind our armed militia over here that's um, yeah, extorting some of the business. Yeah, don't, don't mind our rapper warlord who's extorting businesses. Well, the funny thing about the whole defunded police thing, okay, so that comes on the heels of the protest. And Lord knows these protesters are allowed to have a voice. They're allowed to peacefully assemble and, and, and voice their grievances. But if you want to worry, if you want to find out what defunding the police is, just look at the back of the protest. Well, you look at the front of the protest with Antigua, but look at the back of it. Who was following up on all the protests? The looters. All right. The looters. You want to take away the police department? 
Watch what happened when you take away the police department. The police department is concerned with something else. The looters moved in. And, you know, all you got to do is look it up. But these looters were organized gangs. They were yeah. actually doing disinformation with the police department. They were calling in 911 calls in different parts of the city, the opposite side of town where they were, whatever store they decided to loot, whether it's Target, Academy, the gun stores, the, you know, the, uh, the pawn shops or whatever the case may be. It, it, you know, let me tell you something. The police keep a lid on this. All right. Take the police away and the pot's going to boil over. For sure. And, and we're already seeing remnants of what Occupy Wall Street looked like a couple of years ago, where these hey. tents are popping up. And, and now they're not, at least at Occupy Wall Street, it was come as you are, come and go, have a conversation. This is a literal barricade, not allowing any police. And they had a, this is funny, they had a literal dumpster fire that they couldn't get out. So who did they have to call? The police. Right. And then the fire department. And so you're, you're this, quote, autonomous zone. You're self-governed, and, and yet you can't put out your own dumpster fire, literal dumpster fire. And, and you've got unwitting people, unwitting businesses that are now being extorted to operate like a tax system in their, in their occupied land. And, and I, had a, I had a little write-up on my Facebook page that kind of went through everything that they've done so far, which is to say that they've set up physical barriers, a wall, a barrier, where they're checking people to come in and out. And if they don't like your ideology or, or your belief system, they don't allow you in. You're not allowing free press and you're not allowing people to come and go uh, freely. Um, women are, are being sexually abused and it's not being reported because there's no police to report them to. And at the end of that, I said, congratulations, you are com Christopher Columbus and everything else that you hate about American imperialist uh, communists. You're, you're communists doing all of this. And, and I'm reminded of, of free dairy, where this exact same situation when you look at history, when you look at the Bolshevik Revolution, I've been doing a lot more reading on that since Quentin's been bringing it up more, more often. Free Dairy was a very similar situation where they had a sign, much like what we see in, in, in the Chaz, where this is a free autonomous zone. And what that led to was the IRA, the birth of the IRA, and mass genocide, mass massacres over the last 10 years uh, that, that led up to that. And it's, it's, it's America's civil war or, or even the beginnings of the Hunger Game, right? Like you start, you start to look at the, the story of Hunger Games and you, you read about the rebellion that had to be squashed. And, and because of the rebellion, this is the, the reason we have the things that we, that we have. I want to read you guys this article from a college professor. It's on the American Prospect. He's a, he's a professor. I'm not sure what department he's with. His name is Robert Kuttner. And this was published June 9th. And it says America's Civil War. It doesn't have clear front lines, but it's real. America is as close to a civil war as it has come since 1861. And once again, the central driver is America's founding stain, deep, persistent, brutal racism. The current civil war doesn't have front lines that you can track on a map like pins in a Franklin Roosevelt's, in Franklin Roosevelt's World War II maps. It's more of a guerrilla civil war like Vietnam's that breaks out anywhere and everywhere. But while its front lines are diffused, they are real. They include every demonstration with peaceful protesters on one side of the line and coiled vicious cops on the other. This is a college professor, mind you. We see, the front, we see the front lines of the Civil War in Washington, a block from the president's fortress 
mansion because he's the only one who's ever lived at the White House, where there's a literal struggle for those who are in charge of the streets of our capital city, Donald Trump, or DC's nervy mayor. We've seen in countless other cities where the progressive mayors are forced to admit that they cannot control their own rogue police forces. The essence of a civil war is rival, uh, rival clans and legitimate right to use force. And we are now on the brink of a situation where force will confront force as Trump tries to use the military against unwilling governors and state national guards. It goes on to talk about some more of the fault lines and explosions. But are are we looking at and, and is this wishful thinking on the progressive side and on the boogaloo side of things? Are we are we setting ourselves up for a civil war? Are we looking at an Antifa un- certainly is. Yeah. Are, are we looking at I the mean, divided I mean, states of America? You've got Antifa chapters that are named after John Brown. You got the John Brown Gun Club. You've got the John Brown Association. You got a bunch of a bunch of names. You know, John Brown. What you're seeing happen with the the precincts that burned down. I don't know if there was any weapons taken from those precincts. There's rumors that there were. There's there's they reports there isn't. But it, it looked awful. Uh, an awful lot like the Harper's Ferry standoff. Um, and that was kind of the catalyst that, that really uh, set off the civil war. Um, one of them anyway, but, but that episode really, really got the, the wheels in motion because abolitionists had become more militant. The South had become more militant. Um, and there was just no way to reconcile without violence at that point, unfortunately. And, you know, we obviously don't have the same issues we're dealing with today, but you know, we do have long-standing wounds and scars that are as as old as the nation's history, slavery and racial division. You know, you, you've got uh, what seems to be a feeling of injustice, you know, obviously, uh, and how certain neighborhoods and ethnicities are patrolled by police. So you do kind of have that undercurrent that that was a catalyst the first time around, right? And then now you have kind of the same type of rhetoric and even have an homage to a guy that is felt by a lot of people in the North as to have set off a lot of people in the South too, and set off the civil war, John Brown. It's kind of strange. And then, so now you've got this autonomous zone set up. I don't know if this is going to lead to a civil war. I, I, this is definitely fifth gen warfare. I mean, this is definitely a slow burn. Free dairy was a good example. The years of lead, if anybody wants to look up the history of conflict and the, the late 20th century in, in, in Italy, um, really similar situation and was outside groups that funded both the, the rise of the neo-fascist and neo-communists in Italy and set them on each other in a time where Italy was having some financial difficulties. And this situation, the years of ledge made it worse. And a lot of big players outside of Italy were able to take advantage of it. And ultimately, the reason our military presence was so long-standing in Italy is because we were so afraid that one of those sides would actually win. Uh, in the years of letter, they would have a hot civil war and then our strategic bases on the Italian peninsula would be threatened. Um, so that's my two cents on it. I, th- I think it could get really serious. Well, you know, it's, it's funny that you pointed out John Brown and, and, and uh, do, do you know who was in charge of the, the force that recaptured Harper's Ferry? That was Robert E. Lee. Yeah, it was, it was the invention of SWAT tactics happened that day. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And Robert E. Lee was, had proved himself in the Mexican War along with U.S. Grant. And uh, the, 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 the parallels are scary. Um, they are, actually. 
the war didn't civil war the civil war didn't have to take place they they their political negotiations could have taken place that would have ended slavery um slavery probably would have died out within 10 or 20 years anyway but the bottom line is is the country on both sides forced themselves into that war they yeah. forced them and it may or may not have been necessary but the bottom line is is a lot of people died i mean that was a, you know that was what i think 600,000 people or more died during the civil the most war most costly episode in our nation's history yeah and 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 these university professors and the millennials and everybody else that thinks that a, a civil war is going to be a nice neat tied up little package when they're going against uh, when they you know in theory they're going against a conservative base that probably owns three quarters of the firearms in the United States. And we've got to remind everybody, we talk about defunding the police. There are over 300 million firearms that we know about in the United States. They're, they're in the, in, in, and it's impossible to police that. that. You can't police 300 million firearms. They're everywhere. And I mean, there's one and they're easy everybody. to make. I mean, they're not, it's not a difficult process yeah, to make correct. them. Yeah, that's correct. They can be made right now in somebody's garage. I mean, they can, they can really be produced now with the, the rise of, of all the different machinery out there and guns as simple as AR-15s and AK-47, they can make them everywhere. And, uh, you know, the bottom line is, is that people need to tamp down the talk of war. They need to tamp down the talk of, you know, killing their fellow man because everybody that's born white in the United States is automatically racist. If I think Don Lemon said that a, a week or two ago, said that if you were raised white in the United States, you are by definition a racist. That's a, that's a, a paraphrase of what he said. But the bottom line uh, is, I, I heard the same thing. Though. True. Yeah, that sentiment rings true. And everybody's going to stop talking. I mean, everybody has to stop talking. That. You know, there's one thing I figured out in my business, you know, in 30 years of business and in 40 years in the martial arts is that nothing has to take place. The negotiations can can solve every problem. Something yeah, that I I've said for years. It's something I said for years. All problems begin and end with communication. It can either be good communication or it can be bad communication. You can lose your temper. I've learned at a very late age that losing control of your temper was extremely counterproductive, mm -hmm. even though I should have known that when I was in grade school. You but become your own enemy. Yeah, and everybody needs to get it together, calm down, figure it out. We can't allow Antifa to decide the fate of this fantastic country that's the greatest country on earth. It has been since inception. We've gone through a lot of problems. The Civil War, everybody wants to talk about the Civil War. Hey, it, 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 we, we definitely have lingering problems that, that developed from the Civil War. Sure. But the bottom line is, is this country did a lot to heal itself after that. And everybody needs to learn those lessons. I'm a big, I mean, Quentin, obviously you've studied a lot of history. I do too. Uh, you know, one class shy of a degree in history. So I learned a lot about this country during that time and a lot about world history. And, and uh, the fact of the matter is that we are on that path you're describing. Something has to be done to pull everybody back from the brink. If there's you're any absolutely right. And, and politics is just continuation of warfare through negotiation. If you look at how parliament started in the UK, and the party divisions that they had there, it was basically just a peace treaty that settled that. And they, they had, you know, you had, well, first it started off with the, um, the House of Lords, the House of Commons, right? That was an, an agreement uh, when, when they established parliament. And then you moved on to the parties. But, but a lot of that came out of the English Civil War and the Roundheads and the Cavaliers. And so they continued these negotiations after warfare had, had settled some of the differences, but I mean, you see that with Republicans and Democrats, right? Someone won that. Now we're at the negotiation table. 
and we're talking about our differences civilly and, and hoping to achieve resolution. But ultimately, there is, there is an undercurrent in politics that is, is kind of hostile. Well, I think we can all agree on that. There's, there's some Absolutely. hostility in politics. There used to not be. There used to be much less. I think we had a much more uh, civil society at one time. But when one side gets made to feel that they're in a zero-sum game and they're losing their identity or they're losing uh, their lives or they're losing um, the culture war, they're, they're being stripped of their identity, they are put into a corner. You, and, and everyone feels like this now. It's on the right and the left. It's, it's everyone it feels like this. When you push a person into that corner politically and they don't feel like there's any resolution, we can't talk anymore, you're going to get violence. So Absolutely. I agree with you. We, we need to take a step back and we need to, we need to tone down the rhetoric. Otherwise, the, the natural result of politics without resolution is violence. Well, and you know, in, in one of the things, and, and Lord knows I'm a conservative, right? And, and uh, I, I certainly believe in a lot of conservative principles. I tend to be socially liberal, but fiscally conservative. And I'm certainly somebody that believes in the military, law enforcement. What needs to happen right now is we need leadership. The country has a tremendous void in leadership at the top. And you can't tell me that, you know, the mayors of Atlanta or Seattle or Indiana or, uh, or Minneapolis, uh, they in no way, shape or form demonstrated leadership over the last few weeks. All right. Yeah. And, and we need more of that. And then somebody needs to be able to calm the fire. And again, I, I voted for Trump primarily not because of his policies, but because I didn't want anything to do with Hillary Clinton in the office. I mean, I just did not believe she was a leader that uh, this country needed. But, you know, we've had good people, men and women, that have been uh, proposed as leaders, and they haven't made it to this political system we've got. But somebody needs to step up. Somebody needs to be, there needs to be a voice of reason, somebody that can, you know, Reagan-esque, that can reach across the aisles. Hey, you know what? I'd take a Bill Clinton at this point. At least he could bring some consensus. I agree with you. Yeah, you know? I agree with you. And uh, so anyway, we, we definitely have to heal those wounds. And uh, people got to stop throwing out threats. Man, I mean, you can't get on Facebook these days without you know, somebody being just abhorrent in their, in their behavior towards other people. And, then, and go, we go back to that bubble that they're sitting in. They're very safe and they're a little bubble behind their iPad or their phone. And they don't have to worry about repercussions of the harsh things that they're saying. But when a war starts, it, 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 you know, it, it, it'll we, be in your backyard it'll be in your front yard it'll happen it'll happen to someone you love you know they'll be killed it could happen to your kids you know there will be no if this gets hot there will be no battle lines you could be targeted for something you said that somebody didn't agree with and then somebody tells somebody you know in a resistance cell or a, a separatist movement hey this person's not ideologically sound they're counter-revolutionary or whatever and then they're off you know this is this is super dirty if you want an example of what this looks like it looks like russia in the early 1900s um, I don't think that it looks like the reign of terror in France, you know, Robespierre. I mean, that's, and it, it, it isn't going to be clean. There's not going to be some sort of battlefield. You're not going to hunker down on, on some hill with your buddies and fin off the hordes. You're just going to have someone come to your house and off someone or you, and that'll be it. it it'll be like mob hits all over the country and it will be very ugly. You take the police out of this and you remove good leaders like you're talking about, or they're ineffectual at that point, and you have total chaos. 
And right. it, it, it'll make Mexico look like uh, – you people will want to go back to Mexico. People who aren't from there will want to immigrate there. It'll seem like a safe sanctuary compared to what this place will be. Right, right. And, you know, there's, there's uh, maybe the analogy of uh, Iraq in 93 uh, uh, or yeah. in 2003 after Saddam was finally eliminated. I mean, there, there'll, be, there'll be a little bit of that, you know. and, and Yeah, like sectarian and turnicine conflict that you, you can't even really describe and, and people can't even make sense of. Yeah, yeah. And, and they don't, they're not used to it. They, you know, I, I, I heard someone use the term balkanization the other day. Mm. And that's a We've great, talked about that on this show. Yeah, we are. It, yeah. it will look like Yugoslavia. Yeah, that's a great analogy. And, 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 and everything we saw when Clinton was in office, you know, and uh, yeah, it's ugly. There's no question about it. There's, there's no, so we need to solve these problems. Well, Sun Tzu always says to know your enemy. And, and if, if we're going to talk about what the enemy's plans are, right, like we definitely need to tone down the rhetoric. We definitely need to have good conversations. But you start to look at websites like itsgoingdown.org, and this is their About Us page. It's Going Down is a digital community center for anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, and anti-capitalist and anti-colonial movements. And one of their most recent articles and, and uh, podcasts titled Rebellion, Counterinsurgency, and Cracks Within the Ruling Class. And this is the legitimacy, legitimacy crisis that we alluded to very early on in the show, is that these anarchists, these Antifas, know that there is a legitimacy crisis. And, and if we continue to allow, if President Trump or these mayors or these governors continue to allow situations like Chaz or Chop, uh, as funny as that sounds, to, to continue to bubble up and it's not dealt with either swiftly or peacefully, how, I don't know what the answer is, but if it continues to be propagated and allowed to continue on, like, it's not the summer of love if it continues to, to play out the way it's playing out. All these articles keep talking about six square blocks. They're not talking about six literal one, two, three, four, five, six, you know, streets. It's 24 square blocks from the last reports that I've read, and it keeps expanding. And no major news media is, is allowed in there. For the most part, CNN was in there a, a little while ago, but they keep expanding aggressively. And if we're not doing something about it, it begs the question of the legitimacy of our government. I'll tell you something very interesting. Um, there's a theory floating out in the law enforcement community and the military community that the reason Washington's quarantine's never been lifted. They're, they are still under quarantine. They are quarantined from other states, from what I understand. And there is a theory, and it is a conspiracy theory, but it, it seems kind of well-founded at this point that they are under quarantine because the, the governor and the government understood that if there was going to be an Antifa insurrection, it was probably going to come out of Washington state um, because that's where a lot of them gravitate. It, it, it's interesting that I heard this theory before Chaz ever became a thing. So it, it leads itself a little credence with me. It's still kind of far-fetched, but I don't know. It, it, it's starting to kind of play out the way I heard it first. Um, I, I, I think that if they can't get control of the situation, then Antifa is probably going to start getting more aggressive. Um, they're going to probably start doing more terroristic things. 
look, I mean, if anybody's ever read the book, it's Newt Gingrich and then there's William Forstchen. Uh, they, they both wrote a book called One Second After. It's a great book. And it's about an EMP. What, what the, it's fantastic. What would happen to the nation after we were attacked by an EMP? It's very serious. I mean, like, the stuff that they go into in the book is really terrifying. It will actually kind of scare you a little bit reading it because you're like, whoa, I never even thought about right. this. this. That would be horrifying. Right. And, Such a good book. Uh, and, and all it would take is a few well-placed bullets in some places in this country to destabilize critical infrastructure in a way there's no going back, especially with COVID and the downturn in manufacturing in Asia. We are screwed. And there will be no going back, and you'll have 90 to 95% of the same effects as an actual EMP coming and wiping out electronics because you're not getting power to your house, and there's nothing anybody can do to fix it. Mm -hmm. You're not getting power to your business. You're not getting power to the city. It's not happening. You're not getting medical so supplies. You're not eventually you're not going to get any gasoline out of any tanks. You're not going to get oil out of the ground. You'll have no way to generate electricity in your home unless you have solar power. But that isn't going to maintain control over the critical infrastructure of this country. It's not going to maintain public works or public services. And you're going to have the, the worst, just it, it, unimaginable consequences from that. And I know President Trump has thought about this because from what I understand, they did deploy troops to certain areas with critical infrastructure and in plain clothes or something like that. That's what I had heard. And I, I hope they're there and I, I hope they're on guard um, because that is my biggest fear. And I, and I think Antifa, just, just by letting them have this zone, we're encouraging their behavior and we're validating their activity. In it's a way. the participation trophy syndrome. It, it, it is. It's, it's terrifying. So what do we do, Don, when we've got COVID, we've got civil unrest, and now we've got the CDC encouraging a resurgence of lockdowns. What is America going to do when, when we've got this three-prong attack on our psychology, on our intestinal fortitude to continue? Or oh, you're going to tell me I couldn't have a funeral or a wedding, and you're going to allow these riots to happen, and now you're going to place on top of me another lockdown or quarantine? We talked about a, a survey not too long ago, and it's so ironic that we're, we're it's, it's a little scary. We're in mid-June. There was a survey that was published probably around, what is that, March, April, May. So around May, maybe even a little bit before that, there was a, a survey where 100% of the participants, this is before George Floyd, this is before any of the civil unrest, 100% of the respondents said if they are still in lockdown by mid-June, they would literally go insane and riot and, and just start being not civil disobedient. They would just go insane, literally. And what, what had happened? We had a civil unrest. They were in mid-June. We've had now two police brutality uh, situations come up that is just like, okay, the George Floyd riots are starting to calm down. It's not in the news as much. And then, bam, Atlanta over the weekend. And we're just well, and we had Arbery too. We had uh, Arbery in Georgia. Yeah, uh, the incident there didn't involve the police. Well, actually, it did. You know, uh, retired police. But but I knew when they announced the quarantine and they talked about everybody staying home and not working. I mean, it, it, it was idiotic to think that there wasn't going to be a spark that led to an explosion. I mean, you can't take 
you know, really the work ethic of the United States is fantastic. I mean, everybody really truly wants to work. There is an underclass that, you know, has decided they're not going to work, just like they've decided they didn't want health insurance or they don't want to obey the law or whatever the case may be. But we knew there was going to be a spark. I think the solution for many, many problems, like I was alluding to business earlier, get back to work. Get, get back to work. Go yeah. back to your gym. I mean, you know, you take my gym away from me, and don't, and I don't, and I don't mind telling you, I was an under, underground gorilla when it came to BJJ. I, I was figuring out a way to train. <laughs> I knew that if I couldn't do what I needed to do, that it was poor for, it was very poor for me physically. Yeah. It was, it was far worse mentally. And and you and you know, today I marveled. I was walking out of the, walking around the gym today, and all I could hear was laughter and and, and team teamwork and, and camaraderie and I actually said to my coach I said you know fantastic and he goes what and I said being here listen to everybody being happy and, and you know it's like old times well the whole that's a that's a microcosm of the whole country we need to get the country back to having a good time so you know sad. we, we had so a pretty sad good that it, it's back to old times like it's 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 we've lost something and that's probably what led to this yeah, and, and listen to how great our economy was in December and January. I mean, everything was going great. People were working. We had, you know, tremendous employment numbers. And, uh, you know, the stock market was doing great. And all of a sudden, boom, it went off a cliff. And that's another conspiracy theory, right? But the bottom line is, is there are very, very few problems in this world that can't be solved with hard work. Yeah. My dad taught me that a long time ago. It's very, very true. Okay, if you if you're not succeeding, work a little bit harder. Okay, we can all talk about working smart, and that's great to work smart. But if you can work hard and work smart, hey, I'm I'm not the most athletic guy in the world, but I managed to uh, have a pretty put together a pretty good history of martial arts training for me, which has really served me well. And that is what one of the things that has taught me the value of hard work. You can't get anywhere. In 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 BJJ, for instance, without hard work, you're not going to get that belt. You know, even if you get the belt, you're not going to have the knowledge, and you're not going to be able to do the things you need to do. So, I truly believe that's one of the things that people get sick of with me is I, I actually will teach business with martial arts analogy because I think it's a great way to live your life. There's far worse ways to live your life, and if everybody would just get together and have have that right now, it can be done. It can be done. We can bring the communities back together. We can solve or at least allay some of the fears of, of the black community in the United States. That needs to be done. That's a real fear. We need to address that and fix it. And it, and it doesn't have to be with hard-nosed rhetoric the way we're getting from the left right now. It can be through conciliation and from, um, mediation. Get together. Let's talk. I mean, there's plenty of great people on either side that can sit down and negotiate. But and and, and I don't mean this because we're you know we're using it right now. But social media has not done anybody any favors. Right. You know, I some woman today in California that was using the most, the harshest, most offensive language on a on a Facebook post that I could. Today, talk. I saw it. <laughs> huh? It was today or the other day. I saw it. I, saw, well, I, I know. Yeah. I know the thread you're talking about. I saw it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but you notice I didn't shy away from that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in, in. No, you kept it clean. It was, it was good. <laughs> but, but seriously, who talks like that? They don't. They won't do it to your face. So if you won't do it to your face, let's bring back some civility. Into, I mean, you know, and I, I, you know, hey, I try, but I, you know, 
you can slap me in the face twice, but you slap me in the face a third time, there's going to be hell to pay. <laughs> and the bottom line is, is, is that's what we're facing right now. Everybody's at each other's throat. So yes, I think we need to go back to work. Yes, I think we know, need to go get our haircut. Yes, we need to start training in our gyms and take, I mean, man, what does music do for people in the United States? What, how great is music? And we can't even enjoy that at a concert. All right. You well, can't people are wondering why we're losing civilization, why we can't be civil when we, we actually we actually did lose civilization. We, yeah. we lost we lost about 90 percent of the things that make us civilized. Voluntarily. We did it to ourselves. Yeah. We did it to ourselves. They said do it. And we said, OK. And 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 quite frankly, I mean, I, I think covid at the very least has been oversold in the United States at the very least. Right. And and there are risking lives. I mean, you know, when you when you get up in the morning and drive to work, there's risk. You know, that's why we have seatbelts and airbags and all that. But there's still risk. You can't prevent it. Right. Uh, you, you know, you go in the wrong area of town. There's risk. You eat the wrong food. There's risk. I mean, you know, nobody's shutting down McDonald's. because Hamburgers and fries are bad to you. They, they're bad for you. They deal with it. Right. And we all need to deal with what we've got going on. And I'll tell you, there's, there, you know, I'm, I'm 57 years old and, and I, you know, I've been through a lot in my 57 years, the assassination of President Kennedy, uh, the wars in Vietnam, the resulting demonstrations after that. You know, we put men on the moon. We've gone through, you know, assassinations or attempted assassinations of presidents uh, beyond that in the 70s. They went after uh, Ford. Uh, you know, we dealt with the, the, the Nixon debacle. I mean, we've dealt with a lot of stuff in this United States, and we can deal with this. We just have to learn how to do it. I mean, we just have to learn how to do it. I mean, look at the military in the 1980s and what happened in Iran. That was a huge national humiliation, right? But now we have the finest military in the world. We can come back. We can rebuild the economy. We can rebuild our relations uh, among ourselves. We, we, we certainly have assimilated people from you know the other side of the world into the United States. There's no reason why this can't be fixed, but it's going to require leadership to do it. And that leadership is going to have to sacrifice. Somebody's going to have to sacrifice. We're going to have to sacrifice. And stability, because if we're not willing to talk about it, we're not willing to come to the table and, and share ideas, then it, it won't work. Yeah. And, and we, we won't even, you know, all the civil war aside and, and that talk, but just if we can't come together and we don't have a leader and, and we have no direction and we have no national goal and we, we can't even talk about the things that we want with each other in a way that resolves any of our differences, then we, we won't even be a functioning nation. Even if we don't devolve into civil war, we just won't go anywhere. We're going to stagnate and we're going to become like some sort of squabbling, bickering mess that just talks about petty differences and, and, and can't get anything done. It will be a joke. Yeah, we could easily become a new Europe. <laughs> Yeah. You know, instead of the United States of America, as as Sal said, the United States of America. We don't want to see that. You brought it up a couple of times that what's what's lacking right now is, is just good, solid, strong leadership. And, and given that most of us uh, on this particular show have been in or have lived in Houston, and I brought this up a couple of times in the past, there's the highway that is just an artistic piece. It's everyone talks about it and it's spray painted with the two words, be someone. And I think that's what's missing is that mentality to be someone, to step up and be that leader, to sure. st step into the conversation without a megaphone in someone else's face or throwing a water bottle full of, full of urine to have that conversation. It's just be someone, have these conversations in your homes, in your businesses, in your churches, and then let that disseminate. But it has to start in the home. 
we've talked about this, it has to start in the home. Don, if you could, and you've dealt with this in the past through your automotive uh, experience and advertising, so you, you, you might be able to answer this pretty quickly. If you had access to a billboard, what would be your message for the listeners and for people who are passing by on the road? What would be the one message, the one takeaway that you would want them to get from this particular conversation that you would put on that billboard? Um, you know, it, it, it's difficult to say because different people respond to different stimulus, right? Mm. And what is, you know, peace, love, and happiness for some people is, is hokey for others, right? But I, I really think the country needs to come together. So maybe that, maybe that Beatles song. Come together. Um, yeah, exactly. I, th- I think we need to do that. And I, and I think we need to recognize the real problems. You know, the perception in the black community is of extreme racism in the United States right now. especially Systemic and institutional. Yeah, and I don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I think it existed, and I think it still exists to a certain level. But I, I really don't believe that people sit around and uh, uh, think of black people as second-class citizens anymore. No. Um, I, I absolutely think it happened. Sure, it happened. But I think we're on the growth stage out of that as a country. And I have, uh, you know, at the risk of sounding cliched, I've got plenty of friends in the black community. And I grew up in a state that, uh, uh, you know, we, we lived side by side in Mississippi. Um, my first martial arts school was 90% black. There were many days when I was only the white person, uh, the only white person there. And you know what? We got along. And we hit each other. We knocked the crap out of each other. And we still loved each other. Right. I mean, it's I, some of the, you know, the, one of the most influential men in my life was my very first martial arts instructor, Oliver Miller. And he was a fantastic guy. He is a fantastic guy. And uh, he changed my life. And, you know, I guess that wasn't supposed to happen in 1979, Mississippi. If you if you listen to everybody that's talking today about the systemic racism, well, guess what? We learned to be you know, more than an instructor and a student. We were friends. We were close. Uh, I get, you know, we spent time in each other's houses. We entertained with each other. Our, our, you know, families spent time together. And the bottom line is, is that there's no reason if that was happening in 1979 in Mississippi, that it can't happen in 2020 uh, throughout the United States. And I think it is happening to a large degree. I really do believe it's happening, but I also believe that the black community is right in their perception of, of, uh, of their status in the United States. Mm-hmm. And if, if, if the policing uh, can be improved to change that perception, well, guess what? We, we saw the lightning rod. We saw the lightning strike of what could happen in a worst case scenario, not in a worst case scenario. Clinton just gave us that. But the bottom line is, is we know what we know what the perception is. We know what the spark is and was, and we can solve those problems. And I think we need to act definitively on the issue in Minneapolis. I think we need to make sure uh, that uh, um, although Quentin, I agree 100 percent that, you know, we can't go making distinctions among the law because of what we feel. But at the same time, we need to make sure that we lead by example. We need to lead by example. Some message has to be sent. I I agree with that. I don't necessarily think that we uh, we we should manipulate the law at, the, at this point, but uh, some, something has to be done about that. That was that was bad. I mean, yeah. uh, there's there's no way I can defend 
I mean, I, I have a hard time even doing it legally, but there's no way I can defend what that guy did, you know, from a, a, a standpoint of humanity. No, nor would we. And, and I don't know that I, I don't know. Maybe the financial destruction was this great. But if you know, if you think about it, when Dr. King was murdered, I mean, think about what happened to the country. And um, is it is it on that level? Of course not. Dr. King was was an amazing human being. And, and you know, I wish he was still alive. He's not. But that didn't have to happen. And it did. But if it if it happened for a reason and then we're able to go back and we're able to fix these problems and sit down and I mean, gosh, almighty, I mean, we can put a, somebody on the moon. We just sent people into space. Why can't we solve this problem? Yeah. And we just be able to sit down and talk about it. And, you know, we got to apply the, uh, the, the principles of charity, Christianity, all religions tend to teach peace, right? We need to apply that to our day-to-day lives. We need to apply that to our relationships. We do need to reach across the aisle. We need to reach across, the, you know, from one side of the church to the other. And we need to make sure that, we, that people understand we, we really were in this together. Nobody's getting out of here alive, all right? Nobody's getting out of here alive. We're all in this together, and we and we all have families we care for and loved ones and, and careers and aspirations and all that. And if we you know, if we can't solve a problem, a perception problem, we can't sit down and talk about it. Who are we? Are we really civilized? I don't, I don't know that we are. I don't know that we are. There's no reason why we can't sit down and talk. I mean, there's not enough differences in the United States, you know, between, you know, and how many, how many wars are fought over religion, right? The whole Middle East right now is at each other's throat. They have been for 2000 years. Right. But can we solve that problem? Did we bring that problem here? We don't have to. We don't have to have that problem here. We don't have to have the you know the problems that they have throughout the different world. We don't. Even, I mean, we got communism right now. We're making a you know obviously China has grown. So in theory, communism has made a resurgence just based on China's growth alone. But the bottom line is, is that you know, and I don't think people understand this. We we got a pretty good deal in the United States. Yeah. All right. I mean, we've yep. got a pretty high. Yeah. And everybody wants to ruin it, <laughs> and it makes no sense. It makes no sense. So we need to fix ourselves from within. We need to heal. Uh, I think the last few months have been absolutely a difference, particularly the last month has been a, a demonstration that the country does have problems. But I do believe that we can just sit down. We can talk about it. We got, but we got it. We need some leadership. I was hoping over the, you know, the last couple of administrations that we would find that. I'm confident we would not find that with Hillary Clinton. Uh, Trump can do a better job of being a statesman. He certainly can. I mean, I love some of his business principles, but, you know, sometimes it's not what you say. It's it's how you say it. Right. Sure. Yeah. How you say it. And I, I, I think the rhetoric could be toned down. And I and I certainly could think, I mean, you know, hey, I've talked plenty of people into buying cars that had no intention of ever dealing with a car salesman that particular day. Right. Well, the reason is, is because I showed my true nature and I was able to uh, uh, reach an agreement on a, on the same level. We were up you know, Rotary talks about, we talked about Rotary earlier. There's a, there's a, a concept in Rotary that it, it has to be good for all. It has to be, it yeah. has to be a win-win. The four-way right. test. Yeah. And there's no reason why we can't do that. There is absolutely no reason why we can't do that. Black Americans don't want a lawless society. They just want a fair and an equitable. Now, what the, our, our perceptions from our side of it are maybe that it is fair and equitable. Theirs is not. So we need to fix the things and come in the middle and, and be able to uh, uh, to be able to solve the problems. I mean, there's a large portion of the United States there. And we haven't even mentioned the Hispanic population in the United States. And, and it's big and it's growing. And we need to make sure that we 
assimilate properly those people into the United States as well. And if you think about it, and I learned this in college, this country is based on assimilating cultures from all over the world. All right. Those cultures are brought to the United States. And we, we should be one. And we can't have these individual divisions in the United States, whether it's religion, culture, uh, uh, North versus South, East versus West, you know, hippies, whatever the case may be. We all need to be able to assimilate, come together under one ideal. And that's part of the problem that we've had over the last 40 or 50 years. That ideal has changed. It means different things to different people. Well, I think you heard it here, folks, that uh, Mr. Don Kerstetter is running for 2024. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Don, I want to thank you so much for the time that you've given us, that you've been gracious to, to share your opinions with us. I want to edify you just for, for a second. And I, I commend you for your leadership, for your business leadership, for your, uh, your opinions that are both healing and just profound because I think you can really sum it down to what you said on, on what, what we could put on the billboard is come together. I think maybe if we cap that off and say, come together and heal would be a great message to, to be a call to action for everybody. So Mr. Kerstetter, thank you so much for joining us here on the new normal. We are so appreciative of your time. We would love to do this again as, as the lockdowns in your area start to lift, we can uh, definitely get together and have a, a nice, hard drink and then some dinner and, and really talk it out some more and maybe come yeah, up with some ideas. <laughs> you get down this way and you be a guest at the gym. We'll get together and roll. We can bring point oh, I love it. <laughs> Not good. Thank you again for your time. We really appreciate it. Appreciate the invitation. I really, I really enjoyed it. Great, great talk. It's a great talk. As always, be safe and welcome right. to the new normal.